0: Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of Cage My IQ. Today is our UFC 291 Dustin Poirier versus Justin Gaethje two picks and prediction show. I'm your host Cage, joined once again by my co-host Miles Long. How's no. it going, Miles?
1: Not bad, not bad. Just getting ready for this year' card. Last one was a lot of fun. I think I only had two bad picks, and that freaking co-main. Nobody saw that shit coming, so
0: that was crazy. Just to go over a couple of my uh, bets from uh, Cage's bets up. I had a a 50-50 swing on my bets, of course. Uh, My two singles bets, I got lucky on Daniel Marcos. I did feel like he lost, but the judges went in his favor, so I thank them for helping me out. I, I did lose on the other one, but I did have success. On my on my parlays, uh, if it wasn't for of course uh, Molly McCann losing to uh, storyenko I would have had a clean sweep on all three of my parlays. But my big one was definitely Paul Craig and Nathaniel Wood with the plus three fifty uh, parlay on them two. And Paul Craig looked great. He looked slim. Oh, yeah. he didn't look like he was dying with the weight cup right. that he had. And he just seemed peeking. to, like, after like a minute or two, he just seemed to take over with his wrestling and his striking looked crisp in that one. So I'm excited to see how he does the rest of the way in that middleweight uh, division. And then, of course, I had my sm- my smaller one, my trio one, which is basically just mostly favorites. They killed it. Of course, Tom Aspinall was the main guy yeah, in there. <laughs> uh, and he just he, he took it uh, to Tabora. Yep. And got out of that fight quickly. And I, I just like the fact that he made it a point to talk about how he needed that surgery. And it kind of was like yeah. a blessing in disguise for him because it, it was always bothering him in training. And after he had the yeah. surgery, everything just seemed to work out better. So I could only be scared to see how well he's going to do now that he can move quicker and faster now. Because he was already doing that up until uh that point in the bleeds fight
1: oh yeah no he, he's gonna be a monster there's a couple of monsters in his way like i'd really like to see how he fares against pavlovich uh, like pavlovich if you can take his hands away he doesn't have a Man. whole lot but the problem is you got to take his hands away like that's that's a very difficult thing to do i feel like is one of the few guys who could maybe pull it off yeah. but damn, like that would be a banger of a fight but he said he wants um the, the winner of Gone, and I forget who's Gone supposed to be slated against. And then he wants to uh, take it to John Jones right after that. I assume he thinks he's going to be fighting Gone and then Jones. So
0: we'll hey, see uh, if
1: that Pavlovich fight comes to light.
0: Yeah, he's keeping his, uh, his high set. So I don't blame uh, him for doing that. But like, yeah. I'm definitely excited about the heavyweight division because you got the, yeah. the youth up there with Aspinall. You got. Of course, uh, Sergey Pavlovich, uh, he's a new guy up there. Gone, still pretty uh, young for that. And then, of course, you got the Brazilian who is going to be fighting Curtis Blade soon. So I'm looking forward to uh, that one. But uh, before we get into the predictions, I got to take care of a little bit of business right here. Of course, this is CageMyIQ. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter. On Instagram, on YouTube, and on Twitch, at the handles down below. So just go to social media and give us a follow on all four platforms. Just smash the uh, the subscribe button down below. If you're following us from Cage My IQ's YouTube channel, or if you're following us from the Bloodline Entertainment Network, smash the uh, the subscribe button down below on that. We're partnering with the Bloodline Entertainment Network. You see the merch I have on here right now. To buy any of the merch on the Bloodline Entertainment Network, all you got to do is go to bloodlinenetwork.com, hit the merch button, and then go to the merch uh, page. We got shirts. We got uh, towels for the beach. We got pencils. We got mugs. We're gaining more stuff as well. We got several styles of the shirt. Uh, JD had the red one on the other day. There's a white one that uh, the travel chief uh, Devin wears from time to time. I got the black one. Uh, check it out. It's very comfortable. Sure. Just got to go to bloodlinenetwork.com and go to the merch button there. And we got all of our articles and all of our podcast episodes on uh, the Bloodline Network as well. You can check out all the content that we put out on the Twitter and Instagram page for Bloodline Entertainment Network at BloodlineENT. So give us a follow on the Bloodline Network's socials as well. And, of course, we got this Cage My IQ merch. We, all you got to do is go to fightersverse.shop and go to the Cage My IQ collection to buy one of our shirts for the Sword and Shield logo that we have. We got it in white, green, and gray right now. And I'm looking to bring out a uh, merch for the new logo that we have for Cage My IQ. So you can definitely look out for that in the future uh, for uh, Cage My IQ on the Bloodline Network. But now we could get to the action. We got 12 fights uh for UFC 291. This is going to take place at the Vivid Arena in Salt Lake City, Utah, so we get the nice. bigger cage compared to the UFC Apex, where it's a little bit stronger. Let's start with the prelims. We got the first fight on the prelims, which was put together in the last couple weeks. It's a women's flyweight matchup between Miranda Maverick versus Priscilla Cachoea. Maverick is the minus 340 favorite. Cachoea is the plus 270 underdog. What are your thoughts on this fight, uh Miles? Real
1: quick, it turns out Cyril Gunn is going to be fighting Sergey Spivak.
0: That was the name I couldn't remember. Oh, that, that, that's a yeah. good one.
1: Yeah, eh, I still have, have yet to forgive Sergey Spivak <laughs> for not being able to knock out the most knockoutable guy in the entire yep. UFC. Oh, man, couldn't finish him. Anyway, that's a whole different tangent. So, Maverick and Cachoeira. So, this one's kind of interesting because like I've noticed that Maverick is making progress in her striking and it's gotten more technical, but she's not even close to a knockout artist. There is still some things she needs to kind of fine tune a little bit. Um, like I, I think I watched her second, most recent fight versus the fight she had against, uh, Blanchfield Blanchfield, her hands were kind of all over the place. And, you know, that really didn't help to keep that distance. Then Blanchfield just kind of came in got the takedown. And that was pretty much it, um, which goes to her second biggest weakness is when she is forced to fight from the bottom. She doesn't have as many answers. You put her in the top position in a grappling scramble. She's very good. That's her wrestling background. But when you get her on her back, then it's much easier to kind of hold her down. It's kind of a good analog to think about it as like, you know, these new wave of Russian Sambo guys coming in. They seem invincible until you take their back and you set in that body triangle. And then all of a sudden they're like a turtle on their back and they don't quite know how to get out of it. Right. Uh, Think about like um, Aljamain Sterling and Pyotr Jan, right. The rematch. Uh, that was kind of a big factor was uh, Algermain Sterling's ability to control the back. So Maverick kind of has the same issue here. Um, on the other hand, Cachoeira, not big on the grappling. She's definitely a big power brawler. She's a little flat-footed, and if Maverick tries to shoot in with a takedown that's not set up, she's not going to fall for that. Um, but she is susceptible to like a, like a just even a 1-2 slip under, take the legs. She did fall for that against uh, Jillian Robertson, and that's what put her away. Uh, when she gets to the ground she really doesn't have a lot of answers she can defend pretty well on the cage and she can hold out a while in certain submission attempts once you get too technical she falls behind so i mean this one's a little hard to call but i think the odds makers do have it right on this one because maverick just has an easier path to victory than Quechuera. all she really has to do is apply that pressure find an opening and then just learn where that opening is going to be. Take her to the cage. Get a takedown. And then you just rinse and repeat that. Whereas Ketchura, pretty much has to keep her off of her the entire time and try to set up a knockout, which is really hard. Like, usually you can do that if the other person respects the power in your hands. But that only lasts so long before they go, okay, I got to get going. Especially Maverick. She's a little slow in the first. But then she picks up in the second. She gets a lot more aggressive. So you might have a situation where Quechuera has a strong first round. Uh, but then, you know, Maverick is going to find her timing. And I think what's probably going to end up happening is she's going to take that top position um, and, and ultimately just take this into probably a late submission or a decision. Um, just because Ketchura can kind of defend herself on the subs a little bit, it'll depend on what Maverick looks like. Uh, but I think she has the win either way. Uh, I think one of the things she's really going to need to look for is to throw in those those threats of a takedown, not even a takedown in the first round, just reach for a knee, you know, just a random level change, just kind of mess with Kachuera because if Cachuera gets too comfortable, she can't finish. She can't knock her out. And we've seen that Maverick is a little susceptible to these big power strikers, um, so she's going to need to keep her off balance. So if Cachuera has a shot, it's going to be in the first round, which if you're looking at the odds here, I'm thinking probably over two and a half just because of the pacing we're going to have in that first round. It's not really going to get started until the second. So that's a safe one. Um, if you wanted to wait and play the live odds, wait till after the first where Cachoeira has kind of the stronger round, wait for the odds to swing, maybe grab some plus money on that. Um, and if you want to, you know, be real safe inside the distance, if your gut is telling you that the submission is coming, or if you just think or, or uh, yeah, Cachoeira might get the the knockout, that's another kind of safe path to go by, but for sure, the over two and a half, like that seems like sure money right there. Oh, you got your, your mic.
0: I'm with you on all that. And then yeah. just to add to it, uh, when I think of Catchaway uh, in this matchup, I think of the time that she fought uh, Gina Mazzani, where Gina Mazzani was able to just have her way with her on the cage, took her down two, three times, and then she kind of. What killed her was just the fact that she started to tire out a little bit and then Ketchaway was able to kind of take advantage right afterwards uh, to uh, come back in that one. Uh, You got Miranda Maverick, who's going to have a better gas tank. She trains at altitude now at at Team Elevation, so that's going to be a good uh, plus for her uh, going into this one. Yes, she's had trouble with uh, bottom guard, and she's had trouble with uh, her power in her hands, but The only thing she's going to have to worry about with Kachuea is the striking. Kachuea is more of a power-wide striking uh, uh, woman. She's always pressing forward, moving up, and she's trying to get the fight uh, uh, done in round one. Otherwise, she starts to tire out uh, in rounds two or three. She still puts out the volume. It's just going to be less powerful and less per second than she usually does. But Maverick still has uh, the, the capabilities of being a top 10 uh, fighter. She has really good wrestling. as her basis of her attack. She's been improving the, the boxing side of things from fight to fight. Just like we said, she just doesn't have the power to finish people, but she can land volume. And the two losses – or to high-level grapplers. So, right. yeah, I don't kill her as much for that because she just has right. to work off of getting up from bottom guard, which there's some fighters that just it takes longer to learn that than others do who can learn it, like, right off the bat. And right. she's not going to well, have to I mean, to she's also
1: coming from the wrestling where yeah. you really don't work from your back at all. Working from yeah. your back is a no-no. Working from your back exactly. means you got pinned and you lose. That's why she doesn't, you know, she's yeah. not used to
0: it. Exactly. So... Yeah, she's not going to have to worry about any of that here. So just like you said, I think the pacing of the first round is going to be her trying to stay at that kickboxing range, trying to land a jab here and there when she needs to, avoid those wide strikes of catchaway catchaway is going to look to advance more in the first round. But I, I think where Maverick needs to kind of uh, make this a fight is to be the avancer, not to allow catchaway to move forward and make – Catchaway and move backwards, and to kind of push her up against the cage, and use that to be able to create the openings for her takedowns. I see a lot of the takedowns and a lot of groundwork for Maverick in this fight. I I'm in agree with you. I do like the over two and a half here because I don't think she's going to be able to finish. Catchaway. Catchaway is a dog. She's she's always trying to stay in the fight, whether she's going to dominate or not. Sure, but. I see this going to the decision where Maverick dominates maybe the, the second half of the fight, I think maybe round one. You might have Catchaway have a really good round with the striking, but then Maverick takes her down at the end of the round. Kachawaya still steals the round, but Maverick gains momentum. And then rounds two or three, I see more of that grapple and attack moving forward by Maverick where she takes her down, controls her, and does a lot of that top guard position, throwing elbows throwing uh, the the ground and pound looking to transition the spots to try and gain the back of uh catchway to look for those submission attempts but i have catchway a last in the 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 fight and getting it to decision so i like the over two and a half rounds mark. If, if you do feel confident in the decision you can go that as well and like i'm staying away from the money line because i think it's way too high minus three forty but i could see a, a situation to where inside the distance would be very profitable if Maverick can get the sub. I don't think she could get the, the knockout, but I think she could get the sub. So if you want to just protect yourself in case maybe she does get a ground and pound, go for inside the distance with her because you could probably get close to even odds with that. Let's, let's move on to the second fight here on the prelims. We got a men's welterweight matchup between Matthew Semmersberger making the move up from lightweight to welterweight versus Euros Medic. You got Semmersberger, who's the minus 140, and you got Euros Medic, who's the plus 120 underdog. And he has just taken this fight on a week's notice. So I thank him for keeping the fight here. But uh, what are your thoughts on this fight?
1: On short notice? Yes. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Shit. Dude, this whole fight just keeps screwing me up the more i look at it yeah. the more i'm like ah, i i just don't know man like if you look at medic he only has one loss and that was against jillian turner who now we know is kind of a big name in that division so that's more understandable um he had a pretty solid performance against omar morales not the the you know most technical cleanest striker but um, he's a big boy for a lightweight. He's fast on his feet with all that length. Um, I think it's mostly the guard discipline that I look at. Sometimes he lets his hands drop a little too low when he shouldn't, that sort of thing. Uh, but at the end of the day, he can land that power when it counts, and that's how he put away Omar Morales. Um, he's a bit of a, a slow-paced counterfighter, especially on the front end, um, but he'll take the lead with like those big kicks and set up big crosses when he sees those opportunities for it. He's just kind of slow to make those reads. Um, and I think he's co- like conscious about the counter to the counter. So he doesn't want to put something out there and then eat like a counter hook in, in exchange, right? Um, so my only concern in this fight would be his clinch game. I really haven't seen a lot of his clinch or his wrestling work on the cage. And Simmelsberger, again, powering his hands. Um, but I think he also gets too comfortable playing the counter game, especially when he's on the feet. That's exactly what happened to him against Alex Morano. It went to a decision. Alex Morano is, again, nothing really super special on the feet. His volume is um, moderate. He's not a big, you know, knockout artist. He's mostly a decision fighter. And I feel like Simmelsberger if he had, you know, shown up, like if he had shown up for that fight, he probably could have, you know, pulled out a win there. Um, but like, I, I just kind of look at his record and it's so spotty, right? Like you go back, he last time he had a knockout was in 2021 against Martin Sun Jr. Before that, he lost to Chaos Williams. After that, he got a win against AJ Fletcher um, by decision, lost to Murano by decision, beat Jake Matthews by decision, lost to Jeremiah Wells by split decision. So it's like sometimes he's there, but sometimes it's not. His, his performance is super volatile, especially when you look at the Jake Matthews. That's really what's fucking me up here because. When you look at um, uh, uh, like Medic, again, that clinch game would be the concern. Semmelsberger can go on the cage, and he can wrestle when he wants to. He's not big on hunting on takedowns very often, but he knows how to do it. He just really prefers to stand and trade, and then once he smells blood in the water, he'll start swinging, right? But then I look over at when he beat Jake Matthews, and he had three knockdowns in that fight as well as three takedowns, so like is he going to use it or not? You know what I mean? I feel like if he's pushed, maybe he'll think to use it, but at the same time, why didn't he do it against Alex Morano? That would have been like a very easy way to control that fighter fighters likes to stay out at distance, put him up against the cage, get a couple of those takedowns and pound him out on the ground. That would have been the game plan, but he, he just didn't do it. So, and that was right before he got his win against Alex Matthews. So I, it's like, I don't know what necessarily to expect. If you're following the pattern, he's supposed to show up for this fight, which would imply that maybe he's going to pull out that grappling. Maybe he's not. But ultimately, I think we have to kind of look at how this first round goes. But if I'm going to tell people kind of where to put their money, you don't want to put your money on something that is like a 50-50. Maybe it's going to happen. Maybe it's not. At least with Medic, his performance is consistent. I've seen him have good setups, good strikes, good power when he needs it. He's also had sort of the same flaws, but I, I don't really think this clinch game is going to be as big of an issue because on top of that, he is a big boy for a lightweight. So if Semmelsberger wants to wrestle and get him in close, it's going to cost him energy too. And I think he knows that on some level. So that would make it even harder to hunt for those takedowns, even though technically he probably would have some success just kind of grinding him out against the cage, especially in that first, second round, get him nice and tired, and then try to stand and brawl with him in the third but I've just not seen that level of fight IQ out of Summelsberger consistently. So here I'm going to say that because, you know, Medic is consistent in his performance and he does get more dangerous as the, the fight progresses. He makes those reads and he finds those places to put those power shots. I think we can probably expect um, either this goes the distance or Medic by KO in a late second, third round um, opportunity there. Um, so, I mean, since he's already the plus money, I'd kind of jump on that now. Because I think once the fight starts, the live odds are going to swing way the other direction. Um, probably over two, two and a half rounds would be a good one there. And depending on how that first or second round does, you might even put money down on finishing inside the distance. if It looks like medics, you know, power is adding up and Semelsberger is falling apart because even Brent, uh, uh, Alex Morano, had that eye swollen, almost shut. Like, he was messing him up, and he wasn't really hitting him with anything special. He was just kind of no. touch, touch. Okay, here's one. Now I'm going to run away. Like, I feel like Medic could do a better job there. So this one, you kind of have to watch it, but it's it's very hard for me to tell you where to put your money other than I think Medic's probably going to take
0: it. There's different layers to this fight. First, you got yours, Medic, who is coming in off of an a injury. He's been out for over a year, so this is his return on top of that, he's taking his fight on a week or two news. Matthew Simmersberger was supposed to fight Johan Linese, and then he had to back out due, due to entry. So that's probably why the lines are where they at, where they thought maybe this is more Makes of a, a pick and fight, but then because he's taking off short news, you give the edge to Simmersberger, who has been training, uh for the, for the fight card uh, for a couple of months compared to medic who's only been, he has been training, but he hasn't known he he would be training for a Semmersberger. So we're at the back. I got Summersberger just like you pointed, he has a good mixture of grappling of late with his uh, striking. He's more of like a singular striker. You look back at the Chaos Williams fight, he does pour out a lot of volume and power, but Chaos was able to showcase more of that combinations the Simmersberger. Even though Simmersberger was hitting him a lot, it was still two to one from Chaos to Simmersberger. But then once you get to that Fletcher fight, that's where you saw more of the uh, the ground attack of Simmersberger where Fletcher was the one coming in with the wrestling background, but Simmersberger was able to counter it and reverse position several times and control Fletcher on the mat, utilize those elbows, the ground attack a little bit, and control to gain the upset victory there. Then you come to that Jake Matthews fight. He takes him down three times and wins that fight there. And Chucky's a little bit more of his striking. Then you get to that weird fight with Jeremiah Wells, where both guys yeah. were able to take each other down. And Summersberger was having the easy success with the striking. He was able to stun Jeremiah Wells, had a favorable Uh, attacks with his uh, combinations with the striking, but then he couldn't stuff the takedowns of Jeremiah Wells, who was just basically take down and then hold him for two minutes. And and it led to a victory by Wells late in that third round. So now he's making that jump up from uh, 155 to 170. And I feel like it's going to be successful because he's not dealing with that speed. I feel like he was having uh, a hard time dealing with the, the speed of those smaller guys like Jeremiah right. Wells, like Fletcher, who could use the grapple on top of the speed to get under him, take him down, and then kind of just hold him and land more volume. And with the guy coming off the injury and Medic, who has good striking, but his main attack is that calf kick. He likes to throw the calf kick to the side of his opponent and then kind of counter attack people and you saw after that Jalen Turner fight and who Jalen Turner is a guy that moved down to lightweight it, like that's gonna uh, he's had issues of late. he did get the win last time but like he's had issues with uh, taller guys with guys that could stand up in your face and strike and I think he's gonna have issues with Simmersberger there off the bat I think once he gets past this fight he'll, he'll probably be better because will be able to take a fight not on short notice and game plan and get everything together compared to this one where it's like just two weeks. But I feel like Semisberger is going to have a great advantage of being able to go back to that wrestling because he's been utilizing it the last three fights. And he's averaging two takedowns a fight.
1: Yeah, two. He didn't do any against Marano.
0: Oh, yeah, well – Three of the last four, uh, and then he was able to, he was able to do utilize uh, that in the attack. I think Murano was just, is just a great counterboxer that he was able to negate that with his movement. And I don't think Mex to that level that Morano is because we saw how, how high a Morano can get, and then he got to the point where he almost beat Paz Nibia, but made like a small mistake. He's a guy that was almost on a six flight win streak. I could see Simmersberger coming in the air, mixing it up, and I could see him finishing Medic in the second or third round. Uh, it, like, if he comes in and does what he needs if to he do. it's if, yeah. if, if <laughs> the he tricky falls, part. Yeah, if he falls in love with the striking, it might take a little bit longer because that's what you see. You see when he falls too much in love with the, the striking and the power he gets, he digs himself into a hole where his opponent late in fights can counter that and take advantage of it and kind of squeak out a decision. Or they can catch him in the in the chin and uh, get a finish off of him. But I don't see Medic doing that. I think Semmersberger is going to come in there, follow the game plan, mix the grappling with the striking. And I'm going to go with the third round uh, knockout for Semmersberger on Medic. I like the over one and a half mark. I like the KO prop here coming in. And then even that minus 140 money line, that's still very good there right now to go with. You have a lot of options in this fight to where uh, because of the money line, it offers a lot of uh, like uh, the profit off of you, even if you only hit one or two of them. And, like you want to set yourself up. So like, I'm with Seversberger, so I'm going to hit that money line minus 140. I'm going to go for them uh, over one and a half, thinking that it's going to take a little bit for both guys to kind of pinpoint what they're going to do. you got Seversberger who might want to get to the wrestling early to set up his striking. It could be the opposite, but I think the better game plan would be to get to that wrestling knowing that Mech's going to throw that uh, calf kick. He's going to try and catch the calf kick and then drive him down to the mat and work on it early and then i like that uh ko tko prop because i do think he he'll get the finish on a guy that has showcased that he can be finished in fights so i'm gonna go with that route there
1: yeah i mean i feel like the only way you can really make it worth your while is through the prop bets right get yeah. it, go as general as possible because like there's a lot of volatile factors here like i didn't even know medic was stepping in on a one week's notice but At the same time, like I think Semmelsberger, when the threat of a takedown is not necessarily there, because like those fights you brought up, specifically the ones where he was employing the takedown all of those guys utilize takedowns in their game yeah. to varying degrees. And so when that threat is there, I think he's more mindful of it. It's kind of like this concept we talk about in combatives where like there's a reason you don't necessarily teach eye pokes because once you start poking someone's eyes, they go, oh yeah, I can poke eyes. And then they try to poke your eyes. Like it happens very, very fast. Yeah. It's funny to watch in real time, but that's literally how your brain works. If you're aware that someone can do it to you, you're like, oh snap, that's right. That is on the table, right? But if you if that threat isn't there, it's easy to forget. And that's why sometimes you see guys who, like, I think Pogues is a great example in his his, uh, Dana White Contender series where he was just kind of sitting behind that jab, just doing, like, little ones, twos. And then he goes to the corner, and the corner gives him, like, the most obvious advice. Hey, we need you to mix it up a little more. Hey, I need you to string some combinations. Hey, I need you to incorporate some wrestling. Get him on the cage. Get him tired. And it's, like, the most obvious advice. And he even said, like, oh, yeah, sure, I do need to do that. But, like, the question is, why didn't he do it? It's because that threat was never really there. That guy wasn't chaining combinations and this was working. So in his brain, he's like, oh, I'm just, I'm coasting. Right. So it's kind of, I feel like it might be a similar situation here because it's a new opponent, right? Sometimes that does happen with fighters is when a new guy steps in, you spent your whole training camp preparing for one dude. Then all of a sudden you're like, well, okay, totally different circumstances, totally different set of threats. And so what do you do? You fall to your base level of proficiency, which it it turns out most of the time Simelsberger's Uh, a big core of his fighting is the striking he has the wrestling and it's in the back pocket. But when, again, I think when the threat's not there, it's maybe he'll use it. Maybe he won't. I hope he does. But again, if you're going prop, go as general as possible on this one. And I think that's the safest way. Because this whole thing is a bit of a mess. <laughs> it just is.
0: Yeah, but I do like the fact that with Medic, he kind of mimics the the sidekick of Johan Lanezzi, who is more of a kickboxer, Muay Thai fighter, and he lo- utilizes the leg kicks, and that's what Medic does with that sidekick. Mm-hmm. He, he primarily uses that to set up his striking with his hands, and I feel like the more that he throws it, because he throws a lot of those leg kicks, it's going to incorporate... Mm-hmm burger to want to counter it and you can counter it with your hands which you know he's going to do or you counter it by trying to catch the leg kick and to drive your opponent down I could see him doing that in round two and three with yeah, round one being the, the one neck where neck. he kind of like you gain the data, you see what he's doing, and then you're like, okay, you got, you get to the corner, and they're they're going to be like, hey, mm-hmm. he's throwing that leg kick. You got to start catching it and trying to get him down on the mat so you can minimize the damage there to your to your legs because we need right. to move around. So I could see that being more of like a, a thing to do round two and three, whereas round one, it's going to be For more sure. so just seeing what he sees and then collecting the data.
1: And I am interested to see how much activity medic puts out. Usually he's real light on his feet, he's pretty quick yeah. to move. So that means he can put out a lot of volume when he wants to. And I mean, he's had a long break, which that's either really good or really bad. We don't see a lot of in between. Either he's been spending that time to train, recover, you know, proper nutrition, proper exercise the whole time through. It's it's as if he never stopped training or he's been sitting on the couch eating bonbons. We don't really yeah. know yeah. until he gets there. But, I mean, if he can pull out, like, a solid, like, 15, maybe 20 good solid kicks to the calf, um, I think that's going to slow down Simmelsberger a lot. So, yeah. uh, again, it, it, who's going to show up to the fight? And it,
0: it could there? slow him down to the point where he needs to go to the wrestling. Right. So. But, Let's I mean, see. usually
1: when that happens, it gets sloppy. So, yeah. again, it's it's very messy. Very messy all the way around.
0: Let's move on to the next fight that we have here. We got a men's flyweight matchup between CJ Vergara versus Vinicius Salvador. We got Vergara, who's the minus 170 favorite. And then we got Salvador, who is the plus 145 underdog. Uh, what are your thoughts on this fight?
1: So, Vergara is kind of like the, the older vet. Um, I think he has a good striking style, he has fast hands, uh, he can bring in the power when he needs to. Sometimes he has a, you know, cause some trouble on the cage and on the mat. He's not the biggest grappler, but he can defense missions pretty well. Like he can hold his own and fight to his feet. Um, but occasionally, you know, you see some, some little flare there where he can turn the tables on you if you're not paying attention. Right. Um, now with Salvador, he's only fought once inside of the USA and he lost the decision, which that's not a huge deal. That's, that's what most fighters end up doing. Right. they, you know, either get in through just offered a contract, you know, a contender series, ultimate fighter, whatever it happens to be. And they've never actually competed at this level before, uh, but they've, they've competed at levels adjacent to it, especially the guys from the contender series and the guys from ultimate fighter. It's, you know, UFC adjacent. So they're a little more prepared, but even those guys don't necessarily have gangbusters on their, on their debut. So I don't know if we can necessarily hold that against him. Um, He is sort of a open unorthodox style. He has a lot of power when he connects, uh, but I don't like how he keeps his head up and his chin unguarded, but that is sort of part of how he generates power and movement. He's very close to like Bobby Green and the way he fights. If you notice kind of how Bobby Green's hands are super low, his chin's super high, and he just relies on evasion and movement to do a lot of the work for him. Um, I think against uh, like a vet like Vegara, I think that first round is going to be rough for him. But I think between the two of them, Salvador does have the power advantage. I think he can put out way more power than Vigara can. And Vigara has a tendency to sometimes get frustrated. Like when he knows he's falling behind or when he knows he's eating punches, he'll sometimes do things where I'm like, why would you do that? What are you doing? Stop doing that. So I think what's uh, what's important is going to be in that first round. Because again, Salvador, he finishes. He has 13 wins by knockout, one by submission. So I think he's going to be looking to finish probably pretty early, especially to make up for, you know, what he what he did in his debut. Um, so this is going to be a slugfest, especially that first, second round. Um, and I think it kind of works against Vagar a little bit because he is a little slower to start in the first, and he doesn't really get going until the second most of the time. Whereas Salvador kind of just straight out the gate, guns blazing. Um, well, for him, the problem would be he's only gone three rounds twice in his career. Yeah. Twice in his career, he's yeah. done three rounds. So there could be a gas tank issue there, especially with the pace he likes to fight at. It's kind of hard to know because he's never had to go those three. So this fight really, I think lies in the first two rounds. I think if you end up going uh, past the the second or second and a half round, you pretty much know how this is going to go. I think if it goes past the second and a half, I think vagara could probably tire him out, make him carry his weight, and then just grind out a very close decision. Uh, but if that if that first round, you know, Salvador is getting a lot of ground, I think that's going to put vagara off mentally. I think it's going to cause a lot of damage that he's going to have to deal with across the rest of the fight. So it's less of a, an issue that he has a gas tank issue because vagara when he's fresh and he does no damage, very different guy from when vagara has a lot of damage on him, he starts to slow down a little bit. So if he can basically keep as much damage or if he can inflict as much damage to vagara as he is losing stamina, and I think he's in, in the clear, even if this does goes all three, it'll just get to that point where like, it's the end of the round of the third and they're both gassed and they're just, just kind of throwing at each other, that sort of thing. Um, But for this one, I I do want to give Salvador the edge um, by knockout, maybe in the second round or so. Um, Because again, Vegara hasn't fought or had a KO in like, two years i think when was the last time he had a knockout he's mostly been a decision fighter and some of the guys he's lost against kind of make sense like ode osborne and Tashiro uh Tutsaru he had a knockout now, a year ago guess. it was yeah, uh, almost two years year
0: ago, ago on the contenders yeah so, series. I mean,
1: it's been a little while um but yeah i mean we'll, we'll kind of see uh, i'd say right now because of how good salvador has been looking I mean, that's pretty good plus money. I'd I'd jump on that maybe early, uh, but for sure, again, kind of go general on this one. I think this one probably uh, has a good chance, depending on that first two rounds, if it looks like a real fast-paced round, maybe round and a half, you could probably put some money on finishing inside the distance. That wouldn't be too crazy. Um, But I think definitely over two and a half rounds would be safe no matter what. So that's that's the way I'd go.
0: Yeah, going into this fight, you got C.J. Vargera. From my end, he's going to be the more accurate, precise striker. He he kind of gives up a lot of that power to land volume. Uh, I think he needs to add that volume in, I mean that power in at times. That's why he doesn't have the the finishes. But he he lands quite a bit of volume. He sits back. He has quick uh, solid movement. He's able to avoid shots by moving out of the way. Uh, and then he just it's right up the middle and crisp accuracy. Whereas savador is more of the wide style puncher he lands with a lot of uh power with that he does have the finishing capabilities like you said a lot of finishes in his career but then i look at the the last matchup that he had uh, against uh victor altamorano he did get the loss there and it kind of, that's a type of fighter that reminds me of cj vorgar that kind of counters his opponent's Uh, with accuracy, lands, but doesn't get the finish. Uh, But but it always seems to go the distance. And CJ Forgard does have that dog in him where he goes in there late in fights, and he can muster it up, and he just keeps on going because he wants to get that victory. He doesn't give up. And and then he is a, a guy that goes to decision a lot where Salvador doesn't. And I think that this fight... Is going to rely rely on whether it gets out of the first round or not. I think if the uh, Salvador gets the victory, it's going to be in the first round by knockout because he's going to be the quick pacer uh, to start the fight. He has the power in his hands, and he's going to move forward. But once it gets out of the first round, that's where I see CJ Vargara picking it up because, like you said, he's a slow starter but he's going to be the more accurate guy looking to just touch and go, touch and go, relying on being able to use his gas tank to win the fight. So I do like the over two-and-a-half rounds prop here for this one because I don't see Vargara finishing Salvador. I see him winning by points, just hitting the volume, hit and go, hit and go, laying on. Both these guys had decent grappling, I just don't see it playing a factor in this fight, It just it seems too out of place for me to, for these guys to just throw and grapple in into a, a striking battle here. So I like CJ Vergara by decision. I like the over two and a half rounds prop. If you're going with the, the yeah the Venices Salvatore one, you, you might want to look at the under one and a half rounds and the KO TKO prop, and then even with him, you got the plus 145, so you can hit the money line there. I'm just gonna jump on the Vargar, uh decision mark. So I'm definitely gonna go with the money line. Hopefully, more people hit on Salvador, and they can knock that 170 down to maybe 125 to be very more comfortable to uh, to hit that. But then I'm gonna hit the over two and a half round as well, but not too much other than that.
1: Yeah, I'm going to general as possible because. It, it, again, this is another one who's going to show up to the fight. You know yeah. what I mean? Like Salvador, he does look good. And, I, and one thing I like about him is he has good ebb and flow. That's the only reason his striking style worked. If he did not have that ebb and flow, he would be knocked out every single freaking time. Um, ebb yeah. and flow is kind of this concept of um, you balance your offense with your evasion. So with the ebb is whenever you're supplying punches, the flow is whenever you're kind of creating some distance, evading, cutting those angles, and just balancing between the two. So sometimes you're given, sometimes you're retreating. Vegara, um, again, he's he's got those fast hands, but I think that's hard to read. That Like, as someone who trains, that's a hard style to read, especially yeah. with someone who's more stationary. You know what I mean? Like, Vegara has a good stance. He's got good structure because he's been taken down by some guys, and he didn't like that. Like, I think he still remembers uh, Tatsuro and, and how he yeah, just basically tiring, got yeah. laid on, you know? um, same thing with, uh, Ode Osborne, another good grappler who kind of had his way with him a little bit. So I think with that stationary stance, um, that kind of, again, is going to make it just that much harder to read. But when Vogueira is there, he's there. That's the thing. He could catch him with a very well-calculated cross. I think he is the more technical striker in terms of like what you would expect orthodox striking to look like. Whereas Salvador is, is more like, you know. It's more of a free flow and it it is something that has to be stylistically trained in order for it to work. It's not really something you can universalize. Only some people can do it. Salvador happens to be one of those guys, but if he's not in his best night, we've already seen what happens to it. So that's, that's kind of my issue with some of these matchups. It's like, I just, I'm only comfortable going as general as possible because we don't know what's necessarily going to, we don't know who's going to show up into the cage necessarily that night. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think.
0: Uh, and it's I think quite, kind over of funny. And, a half is- and it's kind of funny that, that I'm looking at it now is the fact that in both the guys' losses, if you look at the three losses between the uh, two of them, they yeah. all lost and, and then they got taken down several times. So Salvador yeah. got taken down three times by Altamorano. Mm-hmm. And, and then and on the other side, you got Vorgara got taken down three times by Tetsura Tyar. And then he yeah. got taken down once or twice, and of course the other loss that he had, Ode so Odi yeah. Uh, Osborne, uh yeah. Even though uh, Salvador in the in that one loss, he landed a knockdown in there. So yeah. it, I think that with the, that in mind, that's going to be even more of a striking battle because they're going to be kind of afraid yeah. uh, uh, to go for the takedowns. and that both guys yeah. have struggled. When it comes to defending the takedown and then getting up and get back to a striking stance.
1: Yeah, they're not even going to want to open that no. camera. <laughs> so, no,
0: not
1: their thing. Not their
0: thing. Let's move on to the next fight that we have for you guys. We got a welterweight battle between Jake Matthews versus Darius Flowers. You got Matthews, who's the minus 295 favorite, and then you got Flowers, who is the plus 225 underdog. What are your thoughts on this fight?
1: This one's a little less murky for me, just because the big factor here, Flowers is still a bit of an unknown, right? So like, we already kind of know Jake Matthews, and and you know, he's had kind of a spotty career inside of the UFC. Lately, it's been very win-loss, win-loss, win-loss. Um, let's see, he won against Diego Sanchez, lost to Sean Brady, makes sense. Beat Andre Fialho, but that was when he was like, Andre Fialho, like he was, he was on the rise, he had all the hype, and he finished him. That was crazy. I remember that fight. And then he lost to Semelsberger. Like, like some of these, I'm like, okay, it makes sense he lost to Sean Brady, but how are you going to win against Fialho but lose to Semelsberger, you know? like I, Jake Matthews has always been kind of like that. That's that's par for the course of what you kind of expect. He's pretty well-rounded, I would say. Um, he's got a nice distribution in terms of his wins. He's got five KOs, six subs, or seven subs, six decisions. Um, he can kind of hang, you know, all right in everywhere, but he's not, like, phenomenal in any one spot. You know, he's all right at striking. He's, he's all right on the cage. He, he can handle himself on the floor. But it's not like any of those, you know, each individual talent is like raking in the wins here. Because most of his wins outside of Fialho, inside of the UFC, have come by decision. He had a technical submission against uh, Shinzo Anzai. And that, oh, nope, he hadn't had another missi- uh, submission against John Chase. And a doctor stoppage uh, against Akbar Ariolo. But for the most part, he kind of grinds dudes out. That's more or less his style because he, again, well-rounded in each spot, but not phenomenal any one to have like a big, you know, finishing reel, right? Um, he's a little weird to bet on because you never quite know what you're going to get because of that, you know? Um, I think his chin is starting to fade as well. According to his last fight, the one I saw with, um, I think I was watching Fialho. I don't think they've uploaded the Semmelsberger fight. Um, yeah. but I noticed when Fialho would touch him, it had a pretty profound effect. And for a while it was kind of touch and go. We didn't know who was knocking who out, but he managed to pull it out there at the end. Again, that comes with a long career in the UFC. You're going to acquire battle damage, right? Whereas flowers, he's the, the fresh new young fighter. Unfortunately, the only fight I was able to find was his contender series where he won by yeah. just jumping on a dude and dislocating his shoulder So that tells me literally nothing because he didn't even initiate the wrestling exchange. It was the other person. (laughs) They just had to stop because of doctor stoppage. But apparently he does train with Bilal Muhammad. And according to Bilal Muhammad, he does have a really good wrestling and he has power in his hands. That's what Bilal Muhammad says. So it's probably like, you know, 50% true and 50% you got to stick up for your, for your boy. You know, if you guys are training together, you can't talk shit, you know? So I, I assume he's probably got all right, you know, skills in those two departments definitely leaves out what happens when he hits the ground. We we still don't know about that. So Flowers, all we have is is some hearsay uh, and secondhand accounts. Matthews, we actually have an established record. We can see patterns of behavior. We understand his game more or less, um, even though he's kind of, you know, here and there, right? Flowers, complete unknown at this point, because all he's done is just tackle a dude. and And that was it. He's not going to win that way, obviously, yeah. this time around. So because he's such an unknown, um, he might be trouble against Matthews. Might. I mean, if he does have as good of wrestling as Bala Muhammad says, and Bala Muhammad's a good wrestler, so he's a guy who would be able to judge another wrestler in terms of his, his quality. So if he is able to pull out that wrestling, that is something that historically Matthews isn't amazing at. Just look at like the, the Sean Brady fight, right? That was a big part of um, kind of what, what brought him down. Um, Sean Brady is an amazing wrestler, but even if Darius flowers is, is even close to that, I think he could at least make Matthews carry his weight enough to get him tired, get him sloppy. Right. And, you know, open up those, those, those openings in his guard for that power that he supposedly has in his hands. If he could do that, he could maybe drag this out to a decision, maybe a finish who knows at this point. Um, but you really only want to put money on things that, you know, um, and since, you know, you got Matthews as he's the minus, what is it now? Uh, when I, when I it's looked it up on the, ESP, on the ESPN app, he actually was at minus three thirty three So we actually, the, 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 odds shifted a little bit since then. Um, and flowers was at plus two fifty So kind of on both ends, a little bit yeah. tightening up that, that spread. Um, I mean, I think flowers will probably want to stand and trade on the front end, which of course, Matthews will oblige. And then it will just come down to. Can Flowers close that distance, utilize the wrestling in a way that's meaningful? If he can, then I think he can take a decision here. Um, If he's able to overwhelm Matthews in the striking a little bit, I think that helps his game even more for the wrestling plan. But I'm not sure exactly because we haven't really seen anything. So we're going to have to kind of look at this first round and really see who comes out on top. Is, is Flowers able to like start add, accumulating damage, volume? Is he putting him on the cage and just grinding out some cage time with control? I mean, it, it, we got to know what the game plan there is, versus all really Matthews has to do is drag him into deep waters, because if you look at Darius Flowers' record, he is not really that accustomed to going three rounds, especially inside of uh, LFA and the UFC, most of his yeah. fights end within like the first round or two. So if he can get dragged into those deep waters, he may not be able to necessarily swim, especially at this level. Again, this is the UFC now. This isn't LFA he, anymore, he, and this isn't the Contender Series. So I mean, really, there's going to be an adjustment period.
0: He really hasn't had to go to his wrestling, and to see how well that it is. Even though that that's his big attribute going into fights is his wrestling background because he has that power. In his hands even though it's more of a right. wide striking uh, uh striker uh, uh, that's been told by multiple fighters going into fights with him but then you look yeah. at the big factor in this fight he, he's taking this fight on a couple weeks notice as well this is a short notice fight it was supposed to be jake matthews versus miguel baeza miguel baeza oh, had cool. the back him had the back out so darius fires takes yeah. in here you got basically a wrestler with power knockout power that a lot of his fights uh, last no more than a round. You're going up against a big time veteran and Jake Matthews, who's been in the UFC for it has to be five to ten years. He's been around for a oh, while, and see. he had, he has that kickboxing background. He's been he's been able to utilize uh, it's been almost ten years. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah, he's been able to utilize the distance to get his volume going. He has good kicks. He has good uh, hands. He's been showcasing a pretty good jab of lately. It's just that he doesn't get that finish a lot in fights. And then that's kind of the difference maker in certain matchups that he has, where, like, you did see the Andre Diallo fight, but Diallo kind of was compromised in the fight. You kind of like, yeah. he came in with a lot of steam, and then you see. Matthews connect on those straight punches and that jab, and once the first round hit, you kind of saw that the gas tank of Fialo kind of wore down. And then ever since then, mm. after he finished Fialo, Fialo hasn't been the same yeah. uh, hype that he was going into that. He kind of got the uh, yeah. like showcased like his deficiencies Shut there. Down. Yeah, <laughs> so like Jake Matthews is one of those guys who who is very going to be in that. Uh, 15 to 25 range where he can do enough to get to that point, but he hasn't been able to get over the hump to get into that top 15 because he, because he doesn't yeah. have that finishing power except for last fight. But I look at this fight, and I I, I see him dominating this fight because Darius Flowers taking it. I think he's going to be forced to go with that on because he kind of has, has to neutralize Matthews, knowing that Matthews has been the one game plan and whether it was for a striker, but I like the distance game to where Matthews can move around and avoid those big wide punches. And it's going to frustrate and force flowers to go for those takedowns. Matthews has pretty decent takedown game. And I see him just systematically just uh, volume him uh, at flowers, to defend the takedowns. And this is a fight that I either see going the distance well, I can see Matthews finishing him in round three. I think it's one or the other, whether Matthews can get him out before uh, before it becomes a decision. So, I'm not attacking that that minus two ninety five mark. I think it's way too high. I can see why it's high because of the the short notice uh, taken of Flowers, so the unknown that we have in him. Even though he's a finisher, he just is not enough to pinpoint that he should be the favorite, or it should be a 50-50 with the, with the grasping styles of uh, a guy that's been in the UFC for 10 years and a guy making his debut in the UFC. So I get the odds. I'm not playing that. I do like the over one-and-a-half line and in this, possibly the two-and-a-half, more so the one-and-a-half. I think that's the saver bet. And with me thinking that he might be able to get the finish, I might take a dab at that. KO TKO DQ prop here because I do think that at some point, with how much he's going to do, that he should have chances to get the finish. So I might go for that, knowing that there's going to be a lot of profit in return for it with him not being that much of a finisher. But other than that, I'm not going with too much here, too many unknowns with this fight.
1: Yeah, no, I do like Matthew by decision, that's what I got. Um, but even like Wouldn't even go anything necessarily past like the one and a half or two and a half over. Um, maybe you can wait and see. Like, maybe Darius is going to come out swinging hard. And Matthews, you know, sometimes he takes a little minute to get going, but I think in terms of like footwork, Darius might have a speed advantage, so he could have a pretty strong first round. I don't think he necessarily puts him away, but we might see the odds live odds swing a little bit, so maybe it might be worth playing there, especially if you know. Uh, Matthews has the gas tank. Matthew has the experience and he, he can take the punishment. So if you can take it to the decision, maybe you just kind of wait until you see if the odds are sweet enough to bite on. Otherwise, you know, the, the props are probably going to be where mostly this is at. Yeah, maybe. because like, Flowers maybe, could come out and be an absolute monster. We don't know. Yeah, yeah.
0: Don't Maybe he maybe take the chance, and after the first round, Darius Flowers has success there. And then you see that Matthews, minus 295, drop to maybe minus 150. And then you yeah. get those perfect odds for him to where he can attack there, you know, yeah. knowing that Flowers has the chance to maybe slow down. And we've seen Matthews have a pretty decent gas tank, and then he's is going to be the better striker. So maybe he takes over in rounds two and three and possibly gets the finish in one of those rounds. So you capitalize on that live odds at minus 150 and you jump on it, but it, it's all with the grain and salt. Like you have to know that yeah. there's a chance in waiting because Jake Matthews could win round one. And then instead of it going down, yeah. it could go up. So it's all the matter of chances. It's all a matter of how you want to attack uh certain fights.
1: Right. Right. I mean, like, If you're not even going to like play the the money line anyway, that kind of doesn't matter. But like, just keep your eye on the fight and watch those live odds. You never know. You never know. Especially with this one where it's kind of hard to find exactly where you're going to make that money. It's like a little hole here, a little hole here. If there's just one extra way you can do it, why not, man? Why
0: not? Let's move on to the next fight here. We got a men's middleweight matchup between Roman Kapilov versus Claudio Haberio. We got Kapilov who's the minus 230 favorite. We got Haberio who is the plus 190 underdog here. Uh, What are your thoughts on this one?
1: So this one's interesting um, because typically you would want to look at the way the odds makers kind of set this one up. And the the ESPN odds that I got were actually not too far off. Uh, They had minus 240 and then uh, Ribeiro is plus 200. So there was a small shift there, but not, nothing significant. Um, I think what they're betting on is the fact that Kapilov is the more experienced guy. He's got more fights in the UFC, but also just a longer career in general, it looks like. Um, yeah, I mean, you got like uh, uh, um, Ribeiro. He's got one fight inside of the UFC. Uh, I'm sorry, two fights inside of the UFC and the Contender Series. One of them was a loss, two wins. Um so I could kind of see why they're giving Copylove the advantage even though um you know the last two fights were you know all right they were all right I didn't see anything like so amazing I thought Copylove could be in like the top 10 of the middleweights anytime soon he's a fairly average you know kickboxer but it's it's the uh, fight IQ that he's gained over the years that really kind of keeps him where he's at and keeps him winning he is on a two fight winning streak at the moment um Because of that experience, he is a more effective striker from distance. He kind of likes to play it long. Uh, He picks his shots. He's durable, so he can take some punishment. And he has good power. It just takes him a minute to use it. Usually, he's not really busting out any power until, like, second, third round is really when he starts getting going. Um, He's got good takedown defense when he needs it. Um, But if he gets stuck on the bottom... That seems like the thing he's most afraid of, because I think once he gets there, he has no answers. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I think he takes that slower first round. He's going to be making reads, um, but he can pick up his volume and his uh, power in the later rounds. And I think that's what the odds makers are looking at. But the thing about it is, like, Ribeiro got power in his hands, good takedown defense. He can secure takedowns when he sets them up. Um, but the biggest thing is his growth. Like, he's, he's kind of like Bilal Muhammad in a lot of ways where, like, Bilal Muhammad on paper, is beating dudes he shouldn't be able to beat. Like he took out Sean Brady, he took out uh, um, Gilbert Burns, like some big names that nobody thought he was going to beat. Even, everybody even thought he wasn't going to beat Luke the second time around, but yeah. there you go. Because what he does is he goes to his training camp, and not only is he constantly working on the gaps in his own game, he kind of looks at, what the opponent is going to try to use against him kind of tailors that and then creates sort of like a defensive strategy or a defensive layer on top of his offensive strategy. So he's kind of covered on both ends. I see a lot of that in Ribeiro, especially when you look at uh, his first loss inside of the UFC was against um, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. And a big thing that Al-Hassan did was just pin him up against the cage and just take away any momentum he gained with his hands, then separate and tune him up. And that's how eventually he got the uh, the knockout in the second round. But then what happened on his very next fight against Joseph Holmes? He comes out and, and just showcases like a small clinic on how to grind dudes out against the cage. He not only was very successful at stopping Holmes' momentum in the same way he had his momentum stopped, he was actually securing pretty pretty solid takedowns and he was getting on top. He was in very dominant positions. And, you know, it just was a matter of time till he got that ground and pound victory in the second round against Holmes. That growth is not something you can necessarily quantify because it's like when you fight Bilal Muhammad, it's almost kind of pointless to watch tape of his last fight because that's not yeah. the dude who's going to be in the ring with you. It's going to be a different guy versus Love. Again, he's got that consistency across all his fights, pretty much the same guy, regardless of who you put in front of him. He has the same basic game plan. I want to stand and strike. Once I have my reads on you, I want to kind of put in those power strikes, put in those combinations, you know, stay off the ground as much as possible. And I think Ribeiro has now the tools to make that very, very hard for him. I think he has the takedowns when he wants them. I think he already had the power to match Love. And actually, I would say he probably has the power advantage between the two of them. I think the odds makers are underestimating him just because he has a lack of experience. But I'm telling you, that growth factor is huge for me. Um, yes, he hasn't seen a full three rounds inside of the UFC, but... You know, people were saying a lot of stuff about guys like Bilal Muhammad as well. Like, oh, you know, he's too green. Oh, he can't, you know, he can't strike. Oh, he can't do this. I think they were saying a lot of the same things about Ribera, especially after the al Hassan fight. Nobody expected that performance against Holmes and he brought it. I think he's going to bring it again. I think he's going to go in there. He's going to probably stand and trade a little with Kapilov in the first. Kapilov is slow in the first round anyway. Um, So I think Ribeiro is going to kind of get caught up thinking about like, what about the counter to the counter? So we're not going to see a huge amount of output in that first round, but once he really starts gets going, he gets his corner to yell at him a little bit, Hey, get the lead out. I think we're going to see him, uh, you know, chaining together his combinations with those takedowns, just like he did against Holmes. He's going to get copy love against the cage in a place where he does not want to be. And if he can take his back, he'll basically just do what he did to Holmes and gain a dominant position. And even if he can't finish him the first time, the second time it gets a little easier. The third time it gets and, until he finally does get the uh the TKO. Copy um, love is durable, but I don't think he's that durable. I've seen a lot of power of Ribeiro, so I think when he gets, especially when he's in close and just pounding on you, I think those will add up very quickly. So I could see uh, Ribeiro depending on how that first round goes. Again, Copy Love will be kind of slow, so if Ribeiro hits the gas early, he could put him away pretty quick. Especially if he just takes him right to the cage and yeah. starts wearing on him. That could be very effective. I see a TKO uh, probably similar uh, in a similar fashion as he did Holmes by ground and pound in the first or second round. Um, so I'd take the plus money on this for sure. I think the odds makers are a little nuts uh, underestimating him like that. I would say under two and a half. Um, or if you really want to be safe, finish inside the distance would be a good way to go.
0: Yeah, you, st- you stole my shine right there, but with this matchup, <laughs> like – uh, when you look at Roman copylov he, he usually is the counter artist, like you said. He likes to keep things inside and then counter his opponents. And that's why it's deceptive, uh, the fact that how his uh, gas tank is, because he doesn't pour a lot into anything. A lot of his fights are just yeah. counter his opponents, using the momentum against them, and just squeaking out uh, decision victories or Uh, Like in the last one, uh, Soriano, he allowed Soriano to do what he did in the first round, and then he completely tired out, and that's when Kapilov kind of took over. And in the two losses that Kapilov had, he's had issues with guys who can match the pace and the cardio of him and then can take him down. Uh, Even if it's one or two, it kind of adds a little bit of wrinkle to where he has to think about things instead of just a straight up uh, striker and he's only fought four times in the ufc over the span of five years because he's had a lot of fights bail out due to him getting injured or somebody else getting injured and the fight just breaking through then you got claudio Hiberio, who is a knockout artist a lot of his fights go in the first or second round this will be his third in the ufc he puts a hundred percent of his power into his strikes that's kind of like it, it give or go he that's why he gets a lot of finishes but then that's why if he doesn't get the finish he starts to slow down in fights and that's where a guy can take over like uh Al-Sak, Al al hassan that's how he kind of took over was he was putting too much into it he did connect on a couple good strikes on al hassan but then once he started to tire out that's when al hassan was able to like you said pinch him all along the cage and then kind of take over and then get the finish but then he saw it, it, like he kind of took that and then used it to his advantage against uh, Holmes to where he showcased a little bit of that jiu-jitsu takedowns and then getting the fight to the ground and then getting the finish. And I think that's going to be the big factor here. And i lean towards Claudio Herberio by KO in this one round one or two just for the fact that I think he's going to catch Kapilov off guard with that. We've seen Kapilov have issues when guys kind of multi-task against him instead of just stand up and trade. I do think there's that opening to where Herberio, if he, if he goes just all out for the knockout in round one and just strikes, maybe Kapilov can survive that onslaught and then wins round two and three for a decision and possibly get a, a finish himself because Haberio just slows down to the point where he doesn't uh, get that much volume off and then his powers kind of just neutralized. But I think Heberio has the skills enough to mix things up, try to get the fight along the cage and to the ground. And then that's why I think he finishes him with uh, some grind and pound. Because yeah, just like last fight, it's very vicious when he was laying those elbows and those strikes on the mat uh, before he got the finish. And then he does have the the hand speed to deal with the counter artist in Kapilov. So, I do love Claudio Herberio at that underdog spot to finish Kavulov in the first two rounds. You look at the the money line, it's plus 190, so that's a big odds to where you can prop it off of. So I'm going to attack that. I'm going to attack the KO prop here, and then probably that's it. I might get safe and also do the under one and a half as well because it gives you a little bit more options with the first and second round. But you're already gaining very really good odds with the the KO and the money line props. So you could just go basic there, and then if he, it, it wins you on both of them, you're gaining a lot of units back just with that, so you don't have to go crazy with it. So definitely the money line and the KO prop on this one. Yeah, for sure. Let's move on to the next fight on the card. Uh, Interesting spot for this one on the prelims. We got a heavyweight battle between Derek Lewis and Marcos Orgario. De Lima, Lewis is the plus 110 underdog, whereas De Lima is the minus 130 favorite. Uh, What are your thoughts on this one?
1: Yeah, I I get why the odds are the way they are. I do. It just kind of sucks to see like Lewis kind of on this downward spiral. Um man, as a fan, I, I would like to say that this is gonna be his big comeback, but you know what's what's been happening to Lewis, I think, is because of the way he fights, he just likes to stand. These are big boys throwing big hammers, and he just stands right in the middle of it. He's not even really cutting angles. He's not clenching up when you need to clench up. He just kind of stands and trades. Now, to be fair, in some of his uh, uh, more recent fights, like against Taito Avasa, for example, he was throwing in some kind of crazy shit. He was throwing like a spinning back kick in there. He's maybe thinking of wrestling a little bit. So I can tell like in training camp, he's definitely trying to expand his repertoire, but you just can't take, you know, the fight out of the dog to where once those hands start going, Derek Lewis wants to be right in the middle of that storm. And what's been happening, I think, is that Lewis has had a really long career. He's got a lot of battle damage adding up. I mean, he's been in the UFC since, oh, geez, I got to scroll all the way down, 20, uh, 2014. 2014. So almost 10 years of fighting this way. And, you know, there was that span where he was winning and then he was losing and then he was winning again. Like, I think that was kind of the the indicator that his chin was starting to wane. And a lot of these guys, like Survey Spivak, uh. Pavlovich is a monster, but Taitoy Vasa, they were just a little bit more durable than he was because otherwise they like to kind of use a similar style where they like to kind of stand and trade. Spivak mixes in the grappling a little more. Um, but again, that was something that Luke Lewis was building on, but when he's stunned and dazed and can't really, you know, tell up from down, he's not going to be that effective at defending takedowns or even really doing cage work very well, which gave Spivak a huge advantage to take him down and get the submission. Um, but yeah, I think it's because his durability is gone, but his fighting style hasn't adapted to it. Like if he was smart, he'd be more like fighting from distance. He'd be looking more for the volume instead of looking to just swing and throw hammers. But again, he hasn't changed at all. Um, so I think yeah, because his chin is so worn out. Delima, on the other hand, very explosive. He is a little bit of a slow starter. Um, and I think Lewis kind of likes to start a little bit faster. Well, it, it, it kind of depends on his opponent. So I feel like if DeLima comes out fast, he'll come out fast. If DeLima comes out slow, he'll come out maybe a little slow. Um, but DeLima has the good wrestling control against the cage when it's needed. His good takedown defense, so he's not going anywhere. He doesn't want to. Um, he, I think he has a gas tank issue. Like if you watch his fights, he fades, but he's a lot like Paulo Costa where he gets tired but he can still explode, but it's very small moments. So he picks the moments really well. That's the thing. Like, that's kind of what he did against, uh, like Ben Rothwell, where, you know, it kind of looked like he had all this gas all of a sudden. And then, you know, he was like, okay, you're going to, you're going to call it. <laughs> you're going to call it. Like if he puts too much out there, he gets real tired. And I think Lewis, um, once he feels like, okay, now the fight started, there's going to be this big, you know, gas out. And, my thinking is here, because Lima's so explosive, I think he could he could catch Lewis and really, really hurt him because that's what's been happening is just the, the quality of the chin is not there anymore. So I could see DeLima taking this pretty quick and maybe like a, a first-round knockout. Um, but, I mean, it would depend on the pacing of that first round, right? Again, Lewis kind of mirrors his opponent in a lot of ways in that first round if it's going to be kind of slower. Um, the, like, I'm trying to think, was it the... I want to say it was the Francis and Ganu fight the first time around. Kind of a slowish first round versus uh, Chris docus Those guys came out guns blazing in that first round. So he kind of matches whatever he's given. Um, DeLima, I think, for this one, because he respects uh, the power in Derek Luce's hands, he might come out a little bit slower just to kind of test, touch, touch, find those openings. And then once he feels comfortable, he'll kind of go a little more ape shit. Um, but. I mean, he's definitely got the power and the skill to finish this as soon as he wants to, I think. Um, I think Derek Lewis just can't keep up anymore. So I think, in terms of betting, under two and a half is probably safe. So even if he takes that first round to kind of feel it out a little bit and then doesn't get going to like last 30 seconds, that'll carry over into the second and it won't last much longer from there. Um, If you want to be super safe, finish inside the distance. Um, But there is always that puncher's chance. And because, you know, Lewis is the plus money. If you are just a diehard fan and you cannot even imagine betting against Lewis, well, this might be your Christmas present. If he if he shows up, either he shows up or he breaks my fucking heart again. So we'll see.
0: Mike. Yeah. He kind of just has that stand-up mentality now at times because he's that one-punch-knockout artist, and he can catch a guy at any notice. He has the most power – in the UFC, uh, compared to a few fighters in that heavyweight division, but that's kind of what it's been relegated to. And then when I look at this fight, it kind of reminds me of last fight for Derek Lewis against Sergey Spivak. You look at a guy where you're gonna be like, okay, maybe Derek Lewis could get it here, but then you got the grap on defense that you know that he struggles against, and Spivak was able to just drag him down to the mat, wear on him for a couple of rounds and then he uh, and then he finished him on the map there. And then Marcus Reguero de Lima is a guy that kind of does a low volume. Uh, like he, he does have that finishing capabilities. He's the same uh, height as him, similar reach, but he's more of a uh, like sh- like a multi-tasker. He can strike, but then he has a jiu-jitsu grapple that he can use. The only time that uh, de Lima has been uh, beat has been when he's been submitted. Guys that have – uh, better grapple on over him, and then they wind up just overdoing him within the grapple on because they can out grapple him and then get the finish there. And then he's never been knocked out, he's been either subbed six times or he, he was decisioned in one loss, but he's never been he knocked
1: out. out once. But that was in Shoto, Brazil, so yeah, yeah, cares.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I don't really count that. So other than that, he's been pretty durable in the UFC. And then going up against Derek Lewis, I feel like he's going to have that style where it's going to be a slow start and maybe gets a of Derek Lewis, and he kind of takes advantage of those wide striking knockout throws that. Derek Lewis is going to come up against and then maybe look for those leg kicks that you've been seeing Derek Lewis incorporate in. And then you're going to see him trying to bull rush him and get up close because that's where he's going to have the success here. Push up Derek Lewis along the cage, pull him down to the mat. Once he gets him to the mat, that's where Derek Lewis struggles to get up. And he, he kind of once you get him to the mat, he's kind of there for the rest of the time. He's really not that able to get up. And I think that's where he's going to have success and he can wear out uh, Derek Lewis and he puts a lot of energy into trying to try and get up. And then it could be the same situation, deja vu, like in the Speedback fight where even though he's not as great of a grappler on the mat wrestling-wise as Speedback, he does have enough to where he can hold uh, Derek Lewis to the mat, not do a lot of uh, striking and damage so he doesn't wear out his own gas tank and then maybe he gets uh, finished via a submission round two on uh, Derek Lewis or possibly get just the striking finished where, you know, Lewis has just poured out so much uh, uh, yeah. gas uh, and cardio into and trying to try and get up that. All it does is a couple of strikes, hard strikes from DeLima, who does have power to get the ref to stop the fight. So I love Marcus, Rogerio Delima in this one at first I was thinking Derek Lewis, but then I did a deep dive into it. And I saw that there's too much point against Derek Lewis to go with the underdog lines here. So I'm going with the, uh, with the finish here in the second round by Delima, whether it's submission or by knockout. So I love the inside the distance prop here. To cover both sides and i also love the under one and a half as well because i think it could be done within the first two minutes of the second round known how Derek lewis wastes so much energy to try and get up but it all mm-hmm. depends on if delima can get the fight to the mat because you know we say this and then Derek lewis can come out here and get a free shot on delima catch him yeah. and knock him out But i'm going with the the first part of things i got Dalima to win this one in the second round
1: yeah yeah i mean look we're talking about where to put your money like puncher's chance it's relative right in this case it's pretty low like yeah it can happen but it's probably not gonna i mean if you look at like tai toy vasa fight for example that was another one where we were like man big boy swinging hammers who knows what's going to happen and it just so happened that Ty Toy was just a little more durable. And it wasn't even by much. He almost finished Toy but then yeah. Toy managed to t- t- pull it out at the end. So that's the nature of Puncher's chance. So like I really only recommend the plus money for people who again just cannot imagine betting against Derek Lewis. You yeah. might get an early Christmas here, you might not. But I mean, look, if we're if we're looking at odds and we're looking at stats and we're looking at what's already happened, that's the best indicator of what's going to happen, right? Like, you just got to look at Lima having more options, better gas tank, less battle damage. Like, it's just, he's got all the things pulling for him. And what does Derek Lewis have? Just a big hammer. If it doesn't connect, it it doesn't matter. It's just a drain on his energy, which makes it even harder for him to win. Like, that's the difference. Like, let's say they both, you know, you know, stamina dump in the first round and they somehow make it out of it. Who's still going to be able to throw power in that second round? Well, Lima can still be explosive even in the third after like a long fight. I think the one I was watching was the uh, oh, I was watching the the Bigloy Ivanov fight. He was still throwing heat in the third round, but he's a lot like Paulo Costa, where he just kind of holds on to it, and then when he sees it, he just swings it, and then maybe it hits, maybe yeah. it doesn't. But like, there's always that that calculated threat there. Whereas Derek Lewis, once he d- dumps that second third round, he's got nothing left.
0: Like sucks, and he, and he, he was getting hit early in that fight against Wardo Cortez, but then he yeah. went right to the grapple on and took him down three times and yeah. was able to kind of neutralize him. And he's a harder guy to take down than uh, with Derek Lewis. Uh, Cortez yeah. does have that box and he has a better stance to defend. And you're still able to get him down three times and control him for a lot of that fight, I believe if, if you go there right now, He had a total of five minutes of control time through the three rounds, one minute first, three minutes in the second, and then 30 seconds in the third. It it, it wasn't until that third round where that's where kind of Eduardo Cortez was able to outstrike him, but with Derrick Lewis, he's not going to have that same uh, experience because he's a guy that doesn't have the gas tank of Eduardo Cortez. So he's not going to be able to take advantage of that late, uh, fight, uh, uh, grogginess that sometimes, uh, DeLima gets himself into. So I heavily favor DeLima in this one, but I can see why certain people would take the stab on Derek Lewis to get that early knockout. Yeah. Moving That's on to the prelim uh, main event here. We got a welterweight battle between Trevin Giles going up against Gabriel Bompin. You got Giles, who's the plus two forty underdog. You got Bonfin, who's the minus three hundred favorite. Uh, what are your thoughts on this fight?
1: So I think Giles makes good reads. He waits for his openings, um, but he kind of gets too focused on the counter game to where it slows down his output considerably. Like uh, I was watching his last fight with. Hold on. Uh, oh, yeah, when he was fighting uh, Luis Crochet in uh, Sanhagen uh, San versus Song. The problem was, like, he was definitely, I would say, the more technical, more accurate, more precise striker. Um, I would say, depending on the strike we're talking about, in some cases he had more power, but, like, he just wasn't throwing. Like, he was either too nervous, he was in his, head, his own head too much, but whatever it was, he just wasn't chaining together combinations. He was throwing a lot of single shots. Um, and you know, he would touch here and there and ultimately he did win the fight. Uh, but you know, he did get taken down and, and, you know, kind of made it look a little stupid there in the third round. So that is definitely a weakness there. He does wrestling against the cage, but I think once you take him down, that's when he runs out of answers. Like once he hits the mat, very different, also very different story when he is in the driver's seat, initiating the wrestling exchange versus someone is initiating the wrestling exchange against him very different story there um now Bon on paper looks like like the favorite makes sense because he is an excellent submission artist and we just said that when Giles hits the mat he largely runs out of answers whereas Bonfram has 11 submissions three kos um you know it seems like this is an open and shut case here. Uh, there are a couple of concerning things though. Bonfim is really susceptible to leg kicks. Like crazy susceptible to leg kicks. I was watching his fight against uh what was why? Uh, uh shoot, I can't remember who I was watching it against. I think it was his contender series fight. That's what it was. And he got tagged in the legs and it wasn't even like the craziest leg kick I've ever seen, but he almost fell like three times. Like he was wobbling all over the place. Like I don't know what his legs are made of just bone and no muscle. But like those leg kicks have a profound effect on his stance. And that's kind of a big thing with Giles, who is again, the more precise, more disciplined striker. I think he could find that calf whenever he wants it. Um, and at the same time, Bumperum, I think just doesn't really care. He just wants to close that distance as fast as possible. So he'll kind of strike with you a little bit, but it's not very clean striking. He tends to use his hands a lot like a Sambo guy where they just kind of use to close that distance. Yeah. They kind of give them give an excuse to clinch up. And then once they're in there, they work to your back and so on. That's kind of his his uh, his game plan here. I'm also worried that he has a potential gas tank issue. A lot of his fights finish very, very early, like first, second round. He's had a couple of decisions. Uh, six, I think? Yeah, six. So, I mean, he can go all three, um, but I didn't get to see any of his decision fights, so I'm not sure what he looks like after three um now i do know when trevin giles gets on the bottom it really doesn't matter because once he gets there he can just kind of chill which is yeah. again why i think von from is such a heavy favorite here because that that disparity is so huge and if all you need to do is kind of crowd him a little bit find that takedown and then just kind of work on them either make their life miserable by staying on tops a little grounded pound here some elbows or just straight up hunting a submission and they have no way to stop you yeah, that gives you a lot of options. Whereas Trevin Giles, I think if he's not super, super accurate, super disciplined on those leg kicks early on, we're talking like at least 10 leg kicks in the first round. I think Bonfum will just kind of walk him down, not really care what's coming at him. And Trevin Giles isn't like the big, like, you know, like Derek Lewis swinging hammers, knocking dudes out. He's more like, I'm going to whittle you down. And then if I knock you out, it's going to be more in the later rounds because I've added up my power shots because again his volume just isn't quite there a lot of the time and i would like i would like him in this fight more if he was known for more volume because i would say then okay you can keep someone like you know Bonfum away with your with your volume with your reach with your precision but if you're going to be like just doing singles and not really stringing together these combinations like you need to then Bonfum's not going to feel like there's a threat in front of him to where he can just walk forward catch you put you on the cage and then now you're in his world so that's why I do like Bonfim, Uh probably by submission the first or second. Um, if you're looking to put bets, I'd probably bet under two and a half um, or to finish inside the distance, um, just depending on how you feel about it. Uh, this, again, is kind of a weird one just because, you know, Bonfim is still a fairly newcomer. He's only had two fights inside of the UFC and a contender series fight. And he's only one and one inside the UFC. So I can get like more of the the casual viewers hesitation here if you're looking at just stats and numbers. But I think that disparity between a lack of volume in Giles and like a, a huge, huge ability in the grappling department that Bonfim has that Giles can't match, I think that ultimately is going to take the day for sure.
0: Yeah, that's that's where you get the difference between both Bonfim brothers is the fact that even though they both have uh power and they have finishing capability with their hands, that Gabriel Bonfim likes to stun his opponents and then he goes for the grapple on and then you look at the last five fights, he has finished for the last five fights with chokes, with submissions that mm-hmm. uh, they get to tap out, whereas his brother goes for the for just a knockout, so it gives him a little bit more leeway with his fighting because he has that grappling background. And then, just like you said, Trevin Giles is more laid back with the striking. He looks to the counter. He looks to follow what his opponent does, and then and, and land something back. So a lot of his fights are low volume. And he was losing the last fight against Preston Parsons, but it was kind of like that counter attack, and then Preston Parsons kind of tiring out from all those. Uh, uh, takedown attempts that Giles was able to capitalize in the pull-up that split decision victory that he did, just because he did a little bit more volume in the stand-up game than Parsons did, who was relying too much on the grappling and takedowns with like, the ground and pound work. And I think Gabriel is gonna have success touching him up uh, from different angles, not allowing Giles to kind of counter him, and then he's gonna get up close and go for the grappling to kind of minimize Giles, whether it's on the mat or not. And I could see the same thing. I could see the first or second round submission to where he gets himself into a position where he can get uh, Trevin Giles to tap. I think that's why it's a minus 300 odds because there's more path to victory for him than Giles has against him. Trevor Giles – It does great with the the counter game, but he's more of a decision guy now where he tries to do the low volume. He tries to take his opponent out of his element, and then he's usually the guy with the better cardio coming in, even though Giles does have that wrestling background. He just doesn't seem to use it as much as he should. But I got Gabriel Bonfim to win by first or second round submission. Of course, you're not going to attack that minus 300. That's going to be a mark to maybe where you hope to have it go down. If Giles wins round one somehow, then you would attack it live. But other than that, I would attack them under one and a half line. If I did this fight and I'd attack the uh, the submission uh, uh, prop bet here, but this could be a one where I might stay away from it because there's too many craziness to go on where I could attack the submission, but then he gets the the KO, and then within my 300, the best you might get is cl- like close to even odds on one of those props. So uh, those are my thought processes on that, but more than likely I might stay away from this one.
1: Yeah, this, some of these fights are a little tricky to the point yeah. where, like, I'm if I'm not doing props, I'm not doing it at all. You know? Yeah. Of
0: course. but let's move on to the main card. Uh, right now we got a welterweight battle between Michael Chiesa versus Kevin Allen. Yeah, Chiesa, who's the plus-130 underdog. you got Kevin Allen, who's the minus-150 favorite. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one?
1: Yeah, I mean... Chase is kind of one of those dudes who I think early in his career, he was this like really promising guy, um, especially coming off of, you know, the, the ultimate fighter. Um, he had kind of like that weird fight with Masvidal where he didn't, he got submitted, which was weird. Um, and then he, he's been kind of like spotty, right? He's been, he's been um, streaky, right? He had a couple of streaks here and there. Even beat some like real dudes. Like he beat Benil Dariush. I don't think a lot of people know that. Back in 2016, he beat Banil Dariush. Can you imagine that? That's crazy. Um, but yeah, I think recently he's kind of been falling off a little bit. Um, and, and to be fair, he has had hard opponents, um, Vicente Luque, Sean Brady, like guys who are pretty freaking good. But I think the big thing with these two specifically is if they can ne- like negate his grappling advantage. It takes a lot away from him. Like if he can't go to the mat on his own terms when he wants to be there and really work on you, that I think puts him behind the eight ball. And Kevin Holland, as of late, has been showing more growth in his game, especially ever since he came up to middleweight. Uh, We've been sort of seeing a new side of Kevin Holland where he does have the grappling ability that he lacked in middleweight. I think it's a combination of working with the right people. He's been working with Daniel Cormier in his camp. Um, also, he's he's kind of a bigger guy at welterweight. He used to, you know, be a little closer to his natural weight at 185. He's cutting a little more, so he gets to enjoy the advantage of being a little bigger, being a little stronger, which in any grappling situation definitely gives you an edge. Even if the guy's more technically proficient than you, if you can overpower him, that that kind of goes a long way. Even if you kind of suck a little bit, right? So I think with Chiesa, he's kind of facing a similar puzzle, but I'm not convinced he has any new answers. He is coming back after almost like a year and a half of not fighting. He yeah. doesn't really have that much power in his hands. Um, it's not like the precise, crisp, clean striking either. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's patchwork. You know, he's, he, I think he has a boxing coach, but then when he gets in the cage, The guy who's drilling on the pads is a very different guy from who's actually boxing in the cage, you know? So I think that some of that cleanliness kind of falls away once he's actually live and and in person, whereas Holland, you know, his bread and butter is the hands. And I think Chiesa is going to have to respect the power he has, You think because he's unorthodox, it's going to be hard for Chiesa to make those reads, close the distance and uh, put the fight on the terms he wants and take it to the mat when he wants it on the mat. I think that's going to be a tall order for him against Holland just because he's not going to quite know what to expect. Holland's got a bit of a speed advantage as well, I think. Um, and of course he could just shut the lights off whenever he wants. Um, so, I mean, even though he kind of seemed at the middle end of his career in middleweight, I think he, this is kind of a new chapter for him at, 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 um, at welterweight. So I could definitely see Kevin Holland KO submission decision. It kind of depends on, I think that first round, uh, how, how, how well Chiesa is able to kind of pick him apart. And I feel like if Kevin Holland can get him to respect the hands and not, you know, not close the distance in a calculated way, but instead get more desperate and just try to shoot for like, Oh, let me just grab a knee. Let me just, let me just grab whatever. Kevin Holland can, can find his way out of that. And I think on the cage, he's got enough answers to like keep it out of a super dangerous spot. So I think Kevin Holland could potentially kind of, Grind out a decision here um, via, like, Ponzinibbio, even though he finished him, like, right at the end. That one looked like it was going to decision. We could have something like that, where Chiesa maybe doesn't even try with the grappling. Maybe he tries early and figures out this is a losing game plan. Instead, tries to go with the hands, which is also a losing game plan, I think. Um, if Pollen comes out, like, super amped up and he's finding the openings, he's finding his timing, he tends to start a little slow, but maybe we could see a, a KO in the second round or so. Um, and then submission would be more like, you know, if he kind of knocked him down and instead of doing the ground and pound TKO finish, he wanted to like jump on his back for, for like a, a quick rear naked, kind of like what he did to, uh, um, Trinaldo, that sort of story. Yeah. So I think he has a lot more paths to victory here. I am leaning towards kind of an early stoppage in the second or third, probably by KO. Um, but if you want to play inside the distance, I think the KO prop is going to be pretty good as well. Um, maybe over two and a half, just again, because he is a little slow at the beginning. And I think Chiesa is not going to be super excited about throwing down. And I think when he tries to take Kevin Holland down, it's going to burn a lot of the clock time, right? So it's going to set us past that first round. So I think the one and a half might be a little too soon. Whereas if you're doing over two and a half, you know, that gives you time for Chiesa to kind of try to problem solve the grappling, not quite figure it out. And then You know, Kevin Holland comes in in the second much heavier with the hands and and even, you know, stuffing those takedowns, maybe putting him on the cage for a few elbows, that sort of thing. And we can kind of see this fight unfolding basically from the bell of the second round all the way up until, like, maybe it gets a decision, but I think he probably can put him away faster.
0: Here's where I look at this fight. Look at Even though he has moved down to welterweight and he's done a better job, he's still in three of the last four fights. He's been taken down twice on average in those fights. Except for the Stephen Thompson fight, which you know, Stephen Thompson's not going to look like he's going to look okay. for that karate stayed back counter uh, attack with the strike in where that's how, he, even though he got taken down twice by Holland, he'll still able to get the victory because of his attack and how, how it was smart the stand up game was really yeah. good.
1: His and, how was smart, awesome and how
0: smart he is. And yeah. then you look at Chiesa, Chiesa, and that's his main attack. He's, he's going to use his wrestling he has good uh, decent power in his hands but it's all about the wrestling and the grappling but he's not very sustainable with the stand-up game at yeah. times and then even though i do feel like kiaz is going to be able to do well with the uh, the grappling how is he going to do over time when it gets right. to like round two round three whereas kevin yeah. holland has showcased that he's, he can still pour in that output no matter what. He, like, he might get taken down two, three times, but two of those times might be in round one. I didn't okay. get to round two. He might be taken down, but then slowly his striking's going to uh, come into play. He has that flashy Kung Fu style, a lot of those crazy leg kicks. And then he uses his range very well with his hands. And since he's the one coming down from middleweight to welterweight, he's going to have that advantage uh, with the reach coming in here because i believe with the height and reach it is 81 to 75 uh, uh like difference so, it's, yeah. so he has a big difference there and then he's 6'3 to six-one, and then even though they might come in the same weight he's to that point to where he might be 10 15 pounds heavier being that he's going to cut the weight like he has and then put it back on. So I think he's going to be like a takedown a couple of times early, but then he's going to get things into it with the striking. And I'm going to go with the round two or round three finish for Kevin Holland here. I think he's going to be too much in the stand-up game for Hikieze, K- even though Hikieze has that big... Uh, like uh, advantage in the grapple and things. It's just that uh, Holland's not gonna uh, respect the stand up. Of Kierze. he's going to respect the grapple, but he's not going to expect the the, the striking of Kiesa, and that's going to create openings for his those leg kicks that he throws and those overhand shots. And you might even see him try to establish the jab to kind of keep him at bay so that Kiesa won't shoot for those uh, constant takedowns. So, and, and then with him at minus one hundred and fifty, you still get decent odds even though this has been more like what it's supposed to be, a 50-50 fight. A lot of people think Chiesa might win with the wrestling and might get a sub, but then a lot of people think that Kevin Holland is too flashy to where how can he not get a knockout? So I'm going Kevin Holland rounds two or three here with the with the knockout finish. I like the over one and a half in this one because round one's going to be more of the pacing and possibly him dealing with the takedowns of Chiesa and then once around two hits, that's where you're going to see the the style of Holland where he moves around, um, incorporates the legs and the hands, and then he gets the finish. So I'm going with the, I like the money line. I like the finishing props. And then I like to keep it safe with the over one and a half. Makes sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, this one, I feel like uh, it'll be an interesting fight for sure. Yeah. Cause I want to see how Kevin Holland does deal if, Chiesa does manage to get him down and kind of drag him into some deep waters. Yeah. It would be a kind of a good test for him, I think, especially considering at this welterweight division, we are seeing more of a mix of wrestling. So it'll give us an idea of how far it can go. Because, I mean, yeah, he lost to Steven Thompson. The other loss recently was Cosmot. I yeah. mean, he wasn't going to win that. I mean, that that I, just happened, you know, kind I of the fluke that I, he I, even I, got that fight.
0: And then you look at the one where you had the new contest, to talk is he was more grapplers, yeah, the, yeah, and, and, and they caught him with that one. And then you got for for Tory, yeah, yeah, who was high, yeah. high level, who are high uh, level, high level grapplers who are going to take you down. But then yeah. they also have power as well. And then the only other lost down the line were two. One was to Tiago Santos who, as you know, is, is a heavy heavyweight now. Sure. And he took him down three times. And then you got Brendan Allen, who had several takedowns and then four uh, submission attempts, who's more of a guy to attack within the submission game. So it was a whole different experience yeah. to deal with there whereas guy, instead of the guy taking you down and looking for the the hand finish he's looking for the taking the back and choking him out type of finish so it's a little difference uh, game there uh, in that one but i love kevin holland's chances in this fight especially mm-hmm. once you get through round one and you might oh, even yeah. be able to get that uh, fact where after round one you might get better odds on holland uh, well, depending there. on so,
1: how many takedowns J.S.A. can grind out. You know, so maybe so,
0: so maybe just uh, attack the live odds for the money line. Hopefully it gets the even, or maybe he moves the plus because he's taken down twice. And then an attack known that you're already going with the over one and a half and then the KO prop by yeah. Holland. So there's definitely a lot more uh, props uh, that lead to success for you with him. For sure, for sure. Let's move on to the next fight here. We got a lightweight okay. battle between Tony Ferguson versus Bobby Green. Uh, we got Tony Ferguson, oh. the plus 260 versus Bobby Green, the minus 335. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one?
1: I mean, Are we really doing this? I mean, come on. <laughs> are we really doing this, guys? Like, come on. We all know how this is going to go. Like, let's be fair. Ferguson really never recovered after he lost to Gaethje. Like once Gaethje beat his ass, he just like, I think it broke his brain or something because then like, we just never saw the old Tony Ferguson, the Tony Ferguson, who is good enough to potentially go against Khabib. We just never saw that guy again. He just, he's gone. And I think a lot of that has to do with the rumors floating around that Ferguson just can't settle on a home gym and stick with it. He keeps like hopping camps like all the time. So he can't get like, you know, solid coaches who get to know him, get to know his weaknesses, get to know his strengths It's that and Matt, it's know, that Matt's training the, around that. It's
0: it's the Matt Snell issue.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I think too much change is just as bad as not enough change, you know? Sometimes you get into a rut because you're sparring with the same people. You're listening to the same coaches. You're not expanding and gaining new information. You're, you're just, you know, maintaining the information you already have. Whereas Tony Ferguson can't stay in one place long enough to, you know, really find his groove and find his people, find a community there and, and, you know, grow problem. And I mean, like before he was good everywhere, right? His hands had power, you know, he had good wrestling and, and then all of a sudden uh, he doesn't have the power we've seen in the past. Can't knock dudes out. And then literally he's, he's taken down more often than he goes down onto the mat on his own terms. And he's turning and running away from Nate Diaz. Nate Diaz, who has so much scar tissue in his face, they're worried that like the cut guy putting on the Vaseline at the beginning is going like, to open up something over his eye and just end the whole thing right yeah. there. He was just literally turning and running from Nate Diaz before his retirement versus, I mean, Bobby Green... Like, if you can't take Bobby Green down, you got to deal with his striking. And his striking is really good. I kind of compared it to uh, Salvador earlier with low hands, but he's very good at evasion. He has solid takedown defense. Uh, I think even if Tony Ferguson wanted him to take him to the mat, it's not going to happen. And he's going to have to deal with Bobby Green. If you can't deal with Nate Diaz, you have no freaking prayer against Bobby Green. He is going to piece you up. He's great at finding angles. He touches, touches, touches. As soon as he can get you with a fast one, he knows he can put you with a hard one. So he, he's good at kind of finding those those moments, but he doesn't get sucked into just doing singles. He'll string together combinations. He'll move around. He'll create distance, close distance. He's very hard to read because he has that ebb and flow I was talking about earlier. And he's yeah. very, very good at it. It's his whole style. So, I mean, I I seriously doubt this is going to be, you know, Ferguson's big comeback Um, I think he's the way he's been looking lately, I I could see Bobby Green, if he's kind, putting him away in the second or third. But I think if Bobby Green has been paying attention, I think he knows Ferguson is not really a big threat here. I think he's going to come out early and start putting leather to him. And I think it's just a matter of time until he really hurts him. Now, Ferguson, I think he's going to try to play the long game where he kind of skirts around the, the edge of the octagon, staying as much distance as he can. Uh, But eventually you run out of octagon. Right. And Bobby Green is pretty mobile. So I think he'll be able to keep up. Um, I think early on in that first round, we're going to kind of see Bobby Green finding the timing is going to be really important here, especially when Ferguson is moving side to side. Um, I think he's going to try to go one way and then fake him out, go the other way, that sort of thing to try to trip up Bobby Green's timing. But that's probably only going to work for maybe the first 45 seconds, maybe a minute and a half. And then Bobby Green will probably have his number after that. Um, So it will largely depend if Bobby Green wants to take the time to read, set up those jabs and be like, okay, this is where my cross is going to be. This is where my upper is going to be and and really kind of pick them apart. Or if he just wants to go, fuck it, let's just, let's just brawl because I think he wins that too. So I could see him winning by KO for sure. That's, I feel like in this matchup, a pretty safe one. Um, I don't think there's really a point in playing the live odds. I don't think those odds are moving anywhere further from where they already are. There's no way that spread is closing. Um, Maybe get a little money on over one and a half rounds, because again, you're going to have sort of that reading out in that first half of the first round. Um, And maybe Bobby Green finishes him in the first, but we don't know. He is a bit of a slow starter sometimes. So that's kind of what I'd be betting on if it's uh, over one and a half. But definitely if there's a KO prop bet, go for that. Um, But yeah, the latest I see, this is probably second, maybe very beginning of the third.
0: I think this fight will be competitive in the first round. That's about it. You look at uh, Bobby Green and Tony Ferguson, they leave their faces open to be hit in fights. It's just how their style is. Tony Ferguson's known for taking a lot of damage because he wants to dish it back out. And of course, he hasn't been the same since, just like you said, the gauging fight. But he did last fight. Yeah, and then that last fight, two fights ago, knocked down yes. Michael Michael yeah. Chandler, Chandler in the first round been, yeah. before, before he got caught with that spin kick that just <laughs> knocked him into the shadow realm. And Ooh. it's just it's just, but then on the other side you got Bobby Green who has showcased that he has high volume, he has very good hands, very good combinations. It's just like I said, he leaves his face out open so his opponents can do the same thing, and then in a lot of fights, just like the physio fight. If it wasn't for him starting out slow and have starting out fast, he might he might have won that fight. But he lost it because he was already down in the hole one and a half rounds, and the judges gave round two to Fiziaev, and then he took over with a lot of volume round three. So that's where I really like Bobby Green. And my decision here is because the I think Ferguson might catch him a couple in the round one. Bobby Green will get going towards the end of round one and in rounds two and three is going to be him just pure volume it's just that he's going to have times where ferguson's gonna be able to use that against him too because of the the no defense game in this fight so you're gonna see a lot of throws in this one a lot of non uh blocks or any any defense in this one because that's that's his fight neither guy can block their face as well and they're just gonna be it could be that high octane fight and to make turdy right. Ferguson look like he's back, look like he's 0-1, because Bobby right. Green's going to allow him a lot of chances to connect on him so he can get off and do the same thing. It's kind of like a similar style. It's just that Bobby Green has been able to adapt a little bit more than Ferguson, uh, yeah. whereas Ferguson has, like you said, jumped from camp to camp. Bobby Green has kind of stayed put and has worked on some of the stuff that he needs to work on and he's far, uh, like a lot of the better talent, like like you didn't get to see Ferguson against Habib, but you got to see Bobby Green against Islam Makachev and you got to see him against Fiziaev and he put in a great fight, like I said against Fiziaev and just barely lost to him in the volume game. So where I think uh, this is one is just the volume count and the damage. I think it's going to go to Bobby green Do I think Ferguson gets finished. No, not in this one. I think he does enough to just stay in it. Mm -hmm. So I like Bobby green by decision. It's just in fights. It's just with Bobby green. It's either one fight he'll get the finish and then the next fight he won't and and where he should have. And it's like the flip-flop. He finishes somebody he shouldn't finish. And then he finishes and then he doesn't against somebody that he should. So this is where I get the reverse uh effect here. I think Bobby Green gets the gets the win by decision. There's no way you're gonna attack the live eyes there, even if you're lucky, even if Toby Ferguson takes around one at most, it'll drop to 250. So <laughs> so I mean to lean towards over one and a half, and then maybe just maybe I might attack two and a half uh, here. But other than that. That's all I'm doing in here is because even though I want to take the chance of Tony Ferguson getting finished, I have a feeling he's going to harness in our sleep and he's going to make this go to decision, and then Bobby Green wins by that. I'm
1: gonna be pissed if Bobby because like what's what's the obstacle to finishing Tony Ferguson at this point? What's the obstacle? Like, come on now, especially because like power uh, the power balance definitely heavily in Bobby Green's favor. Like, very much he's the power striker here and ferguson is has to be the volume striker yeah. and he's not gonna be like we don't know. we've seen his last few fights it's not really his game right now yeah. i'm not really sure what the hell his game is honestly like it keeps changing i
0: oh. just look at i just like the fact that it, it, he he lost to uh, Max chevin Duber uh by yeah. finishes but then you look at all of his wins, decision, 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 yeah. decision. He did finish Al quinta who is more of a, a grappler, knocked him out there. And then you go way down uh, to the oh, next one. D- decision, <laughs> decision, decision, decision. Yeah. And then he did not got Krause. It just seems like even though he has the volume and he has the power, he just can't finish his opponents. And then he did – then it's Jared Gordon, though. But then that got overturned because of the eye poop. No, yeah, because the head, the eye yeah. poke or the head head. But well, he was going eye.
1: in for like an elbow, like he was trying yeah. to crash in, but he yeah. missed and he just went head to head.
0: Yeah, and yeah, then yeah, that affected sad. the the fight there. So it's like, and it, it, I'm leaning towards just the decision, but that's me being safe yeah. there. I but I do think, saying, yeah. but I do think that you can attack the over one and a half. I think that's a that's very easily, safe yeah. one to go with. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the featured bout here on the main card. We got a men's welterweight matchup between Steven Thompson versus Mikel Ferrer. You got minus 195 for Thompson. And then for, for Hayden, we got plus uh, 165. What are your thoughts on this one?
1: So I think with Thompson, you got, you know, we all know what to expect. Good technical kickboxing, fighting from range, very quick with the in and out movement. Makes him hard to read in a different way than, say, like Bobby Green, where that ebb and flow happens, where there are openings, but that's part of the game plan, and they want to pull the attack so that they can create their openings for themselves. So that ebb and flow back and forth, Thompson is a little different. His his rhythm is a lot more choppy in relation to his opponent. What I mean by that is. He will set up one pace, like when he's working with his jab or when he's working with that low sidekick on the shin, off his front leg, he'll kind of touch and create a small rhythm. And then when you're not expecting it, boom, all of a sudden he's up in your face, he throws a big cross, then he darts out. That in and out movement, because of the choppy timing in terms of what the opponent is expecting and where he actually ends up being, makes him a tough read. Um, And that's basically what carried him to victory. We already talked about the Kevin Holland fight. That was a big part of it. Um, So I think he has, over the years, he's acquired really decent takedown defense. Um, He's learned how to handle the wrestling on the cage very well to where he can hold his own. He can create a separation when he needs to. If he wants to kind of make it grimy, throw a few elbows before he leaves, he can do that. Um, Not the best ground game. Has not really acquired that skill. That's that's a little outside his reach. But I don't think that's going to be a huge deal here. Uh, Pieria has a lot of power in his hands. He's an unorthodox striker. He's a little wild. You know, I think sometimes he's a little too wild. He leaves openings. And I think, you know, he's quick to start in the first, but by like the end of the first, he's, you know, where he's bouncing, he's starting to get flat footed. You get to the middle of the second, his volume drops off almost entirely. You get to the third, he's mostly doing the Paulo Costa strategy of just kind of exploding at opportune times but largely he's not the same guy who started. So there is sort of been this history of this, this gas tank that's never quite got to where it needs to be. Whereas Steven Thompson can go five rounds, easy, keep the same pace, stay in your face, do the volume. It's, it's largely what gets him his victories, you know? Um, And I think that's a big part of why he wins so often against guys like this, especially the unorthodox kind of wild power strikers. They want to set up sort of their own rhythm and then he's very, very good at using his movement to break that rhythm and go in, score some points. He might not finish you, but he'll get in your face, I'll hurt you. The judges will see it. And then before you have time to throw your big, wild, you know, punch that could finish him, he's already out and he's back at distance. It, and again, that's pretty much what he did to Kevin Holland. And Kevin Holland had a pretty heavy power advantage against him, even got him a few times, but he had the durability to see it through. I think Alex Peria will have a similar power advantage, but I think that unorthodox style and that kind of brawling, I think is going to open himself up to basically exactly what Thompson wants, more of the wild style. I think the difference here is that Peria is more mobile than Kevin Holland was, especially in that first round. He kind of likes to skirt along the edge of the ring. So Thompson will have to chase him a little bit. It will slow down his reads. So, I mean, if you're looking at uh, not just going with the straight decision outright, which you probably will get, um, you can look at over two and a half because that first round, I think we're not going to see as much activity because Piria is going to want to maintain the distance while Thompson's going to want to kind of m- like close in, but he's not going to want it too too fast. He's going to want to make his reads off of his jab and off his lead leg. Once he feels comfortable, I think starting in the second, he'll start to kind of pick up the volume a little bit more once he knows what he's dealing with. And also once Pieria starts tiring out and he's not quite as mobile anymore, he's a little bit more flat footed, a little bit more stationary, easier to enter on. Um, so yeah, I, I think he keeps his number six spot by decision over two and a half rounds. Um, you could try playing the live odds on this one again, it depends because yeah. Pieria's best round is his first. So if he comes out and he's throwing heat, I think Thompson can weather the storm. I think he's durable enough to stay in the fight. Uh, but it could swing because the gap is what is close enough, could swing to where potentially you know that minus 195 gets a lot lower, maybe in the 150 or even plus money, depending on how well Pieria does. Because again, I think the odds makers are looking at this one where you've got the power versus the the technical decision fighter. And, and, you know, the power fighter, the argument always is, you know, puncher's chance, right? So you, you, I think if you see a strong, you know, outpouring of power and volume early on, it could be enough to get the, the odds makers to swing the other direction going into the second. But then, of course, once Thompson starts implementing his game plan, that will go away very, very quickly. Um, but yeah. I, I, that's how I'd play this one, probably.
0: Yeah, and when you look at it a little bit more, uh, Fajita's not as much accurate as he is. He, that's why he has that crazy style capoeira because he wants to throw a different outlook onto you than you normally see. And But then yeah. with him not being as accurate, you, with a guy like Steven Thompson, who's very good at countering with that karate stance and throwing those, using that kickboxing style to kind of counter it, he can kind of stand back. Wait and uh, wait for the onslaught, and then just kind of move out of the way, slip, and then throw a leg kick or a strike at him, and then get back out into range. So there's always going to be the one kind of reacting to what Fajita does, and allows him to not utilize as much energy because he's standing in place, moving, and allowing Fajita to. Would pour out the more of vo- all, uh, pour out the more cardio and the more gas out of his gas tank than he is. That's how you see a lot of uh, decisions by Thompson, it's because of that one master masterful movement there. And then you look at him and the two losses he had recently. There were two guys like Burns and Muhammad, and they're guys that have kind of under under math what you need to do with Thompson. You know, when when you go for the double head leg, double leg takedown, you drive with the double leg takedown along the fence and then you keep on pushing with the single leg. And then eventually you'll be able to get him down. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of people just attack with the double leg, try and force it and then they keep on going or they bail out. Those two guys didn't do that, and that's where you saw the success against Thompson was that. Thompson can fight against just about anybody who has power in him just for the fact, and like we said, he can counter with both his hands and his legs, and he can get back into range. So in this fight, I'll keep it simple. I got Stephen Thompson by decision. I think he pours out more volume. He has the better gas tank. You might see Fajita had the better uh spurts early on in the first round, but then because he out- pours out too much gas tank with that style early in fights, I see him feigning in the second and third round, and then I see Thompson taking over. I could see a 30-27 here. Or if Fajita wins round one, I see 29 to 28 Thompson here. So I'm definitely yeah. playing the over one and a half and the decision mark here. And I I can play the minus one 95. right now if I wanted to, or I could wait and see how round one goes and play the live odds once round two starts.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, this one is a lot more open and closed. Fun fact, yeah. I just saw the uh, UFC released um, the embedded episodes, the first yeah. one for the upcoming uh, pay-per-view. And uh, Pierre is actually doing like uh, workouts in the mountains with, um, I think it's the Army, but it, they, they the guy who was interviewed with Special Forces. So yeah. he might be working out with the Green Berets. But um, they were saying like, oh, yeah, like he's not even breathing hard and we're exhausted. So, you know, he's in good shape. But that just means it's an output problem. Like that yeah. means he's got a great gas tank, but he's just putting too much in too early. And then, you know, for the rest of the fight, he's, he's running on fumes. Either way, it's, it's not good. You can't do that against a guy like Thompson, who's good at pacing his energy, waiting, playing the long game, picking you apart you know that's part of the reason why he doesn't have as many knockouts but you yeah. know i don't think pierre is going to be able to take the spot from him i think he's going to hold on to that for a while and other
0: when you look at fajita he does he is on a five fight sh- one streak but all of his fights mm-hmm. go to decision where mm-hmm. it, it, he does have two fights that go over 100 strikes but then he has a cupper where he has 92 44 mm-hmm and 88 and then he has a couple yeah. takedowns where he has that but i don't think he's going to have the success where he's yeah. going to be able to capitalize on those takedowns because he's not yeah. well versed into the style of wrestling that the yeah. burns and muhammad are where they go to the next level to yeah. go for it. you're going to see him go for it and then you're going to see him kind of bail on it and yeah. with the output you know uh with uh, thompson he can match the output. He had 163 right. against Holland. He had 171 against Neal, 138 against Luke. Against guys that are going to push the volume with him, he's going to match it. He's more of a guy that will, will either sit back and be laid back or he's going to match the volume count. So. That's why I think it's going yeah. to go to the decision is the fact that so. he's going to look to match it and then Pajada has showcased that he can go to the decision even though he might slow down in fights and Thompson's not that much of a finisher. So I think decision is a very safe bet.
1: Yeah, and I mean, especially when you look at the last five fights, you look at the names, there's a, a couple of things that stick out immediately with Panaria. When you yeah. look at Ponzinibbio, Price, and Imadov, He's got the he's got the power advantage in, on all three of those guys, and yeah. I think the damage accumulation really helped out a lot. And he did fin, finish Imada, but for Price yeah. and Ponzinibbio, the the damage I think was pretty significant, and that swayed the card significantly. With Fialho and and uh, Chaos Williams, I think it was the speed advantage. He was able to stay away from their worst stuff while peppering them with just little shots here and there, and then run away real quick. Kind of like what Stephen Thompson does, but in a very kind of janky, less clean way in in his own style. Yeah.
0: It's so gonna be I, it's I gonna be how, yeah, yeah it's, gonna be how, yeah, it's gonna be how he attacks the stationary uh, moments of T- Stephen Thompson, where he's like he, he very to often. Of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but she's gonna. Well, I, I don't mean stationary. I mean more times where he's like, even though know, he's hopping, but he's not right. trying to move too fast. And he right, tries yeah. to beat you inside, so then he can. Tap you with the jab, and then smack Mm -hmm. you with that sidekick to then jump back out into range and get you Mm -hmm. kind of like uh, frustrated to where you start throwing stuff that you normally wouldn't throw because he's connected on these crazy uh, angles that you're not normally used to
1: seeing.
0: Yeah, let's let's move on to the co-main event, Ethan. We got a very fun light heavyweight battle between Jan Johovic versus. Alex Fajeda, who's making his debut in the light heavyweight division. You got Jojovic, who's the minus 120 favorite. And then you got Fajeda, who's the plus 100 underdog. What are your thoughts on this co-main event?
1: And this is a little weird, Alex Pierre moving up to light heavyweight, especially when he's guaranteed a rematch against Adesanya. Like, would you rather be the main event on a pay-per-view or would you rather be the co-main on a pay-per-view featuring a fake belt. Like, I don't know. I'm just saying it seems like kind of a weird career and business move, but I can kind of see why he might do it. I think it was because Glover to you know, just recently retired and and after getting beat by Adesanya, he's like, well, maybe I could go and, you know, carry the torch for, for Glover up there in light heavyweight. And I mean, I think he's got the size and power, maybe cutting that all the way down to middleweight was really hard on him. We don't, we don't really know since he's not the most like high energy fighter. He just has a lot of power. And then once he finds those moments, he can really unload, but he's good at kind of pacing himself so he can keep doing it. Um, and then of course we already know Blachowicz. He's already well-rounded, lots of power in his striking, good wrestling ability. He's just kind of filled out his, his game a lot ever since he's, you know, really started coming into his own in the UFC. He's become a real uh, force to be reckoned with. Um, but I think the odds are pretty good where they're at. The live odds I had earlier were um, minus 125 for Yehovich, and Pieria was at plus 105. So it looks like a little bit of movement there, five points on either end. Um, but I think the odds are kind of right where they're supposed to be, mostly because of, of one big fat, well, two big factors. One, obviously, Jojovic has the grappling that Pieria does not. Pieria is right now in training camp with Glover to share and you know, all the Brazilians. Trying to refine his grappling ability, whereas Yohovich has had plenty of time to flesh it out, test it inside the octagon, really, you know, get get used to what that feels like to operate at that level and, and make it win against guys who have a similar style to Pieria, you know, like Israel Adesanya. He stood with him a little bit, figured out that the kickboxing thing wasn't going to work, so he took him to the mat, ground him out for the next like three or four rounds, and you know took the decision. Um, but the other thing I think people forget when they want to back Pieria is that Pieria does have a huge weakness. We just haven't seen it in a while because of the opponents he's been paired up with. But if you think all the way back to his debut inside the UFC, he had a fight against Andreas Michalaitis, and he almost lost. I actually pulled up the UFC stats for this one. Um, Michalaitis got four minutes of control time in round one because he took Pieria to the fence, got to his back, and then just smothered him. Wouldn't let him off, wouldn't let him breathe. I think he managed to score like two small takedowns here and there, but Pierre is such a big guy. He couldn't really like hold him down, but he did still have control of the back the whole time, just riding him out, getting him tired. Like Pierre didn't like that. He couldn't really strike. He couldn't really do anything. He was just kind of stuck there carrying this dude's weight for four minutes. But everybody remembers the second round where he comes out and knocks him out with the big flying knee finish. That's what people remember. But when you look at a guy like Jojovic, he could absolutely execute that game plan. No problem. All he's got to do is find Pieria's back. That's that's not a big issue for him. I think he can do that in his sleep. I think he has the power to match Pieria. Um, and even Pieria, who I think had the power advantage against Israel Adesanya, even then he was still kind of slow to start. He didn't want to overcommit to anything. He wanted to kind of take his time, find his reads. And against, against Jojovic, um, I think he's probably going to do something similar in that first round where he's not really going to be focused on putting as much damage as he can on Jojovich as possible to try to slow down the inevitable wrestling, right? Like whenever you have a, 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 let's say, a, you know, all-American, you know, NCAA top champion wrestler in the first round. Well, if you can beat on him for that five minutes and you can wear on him, get him tired, get him hurt. Well, in the second round, he's like, you know... He's, he's on the varsity team at college, but he's not anything special, right? And that's kind of how this works with wrestlers is if you can get them tired and damaged, they start making mistakes. That's what he should do, but I don't think he's going to do it. I think he's going to be very conservative in his first round because he always is. I think Yohovich will probably stand and trade with him a little bit. He'll get tagged with a little bit of Pierre's power. He's pretty durable, so I think he can take it. But once he realizes this is not going to go his way, just like he did with Adesanya, he's going to mix it up. He's going to take him to the cage. And whether he wants to put him on the ground or just take his back and hold him and just wrestle him against Cage, smother him, I don't think Pieria is going to have any answers. I did see in the uh, in the embedded UFC episode, Pieria is working a lot of jiu-jitsu and his coach is like, nobody can hold Pieria because he's too big. It's like, well, no, somebody already did that. That happened. And you guys are over here working jujitsu the last freaking week of the fight. You're, you should be drilling the shit out of like, okay, we have your back. Get out of it. All right, good. Let's do it again. Here's your bet. Get out of it. That's all they should be doing at this point, because that's like Yohovich saw that fight. His trainer saw that fight, and they already know that's his biggest weakness. So I think they're going to really capitalize on that. And Pierre is not going to have much to do there, other than try to kind of flail around and hope maybe his his week long jujitsu tutelage under Glover share might pull something out for him. But I don't really see him, ga- you know, doing any better against Yohovich as he did in the first round of his debut, where. He just was out of options, and he couldn't put the put the person in front of him where he wanted, put the power where he needed to put it, because, again, he's kind of slow to start. He should be coming balls out, but I don't think he's going to. Um, so I think definitely over 2.5 if we're going the grappling route. If you want to be super safe, over 1.5 for sure. Um, I think Yohovich is probably going to go by decision, so if you see a profit for that. Um, also, if there's not necessarily good money to be made there, maybe you can get a little something by uh, having the fight go the distance would be another way to maybe – uh, pull something out of that
0: i look at this fight and i, I kind of compare it to the Addisana fight with jehovich but the di- big difference mm-hmm. is the fact that Fajita is coming in 30 pounds heavier than is the boy is or mm-hmm. did because adesana is normally a middleweight whereas yeah. fajita is a big boy who was cutting a lot of weight kind of like what davis and figurator was doing getting down yep. to flyweight, and now you see him at a more nat- natural weight class at light heavyweight for himself. And then you even look at how big he is compared to Glover Teixeira. He's bigger than T- Glover Teixeira is from a height standpoint and may- maybe close to him in weight. He just had- has better cut than uh, Teixeira is. He's going to yeah. come in with a bigger height and uh, reach advantage. He's 6'4", Yehovah is 6'2". And then with the reach, it's eighty to seventy eight for Heda. So I feel like oh. even though, uh, like he has had issues with the takedown, especially in that debut, you haven't seen much of that since then. And I think that he's going to come in better with defending the takedown, and and then he has that big time kickboxing style. You're going to see him uh, stand and trade with Ihuvc. Ihuvc has the power on his side. But I think the technique and the volume count in him from different angles is going to be on the fajitas side. So I think the, the move up is not going to be too much of an effect because he's normally that big anyway. And he was making that cut. He's just going to maybe lose a little bit of power, maybe, really, compared to the sp- speed. He might be the faster guy now. And where he's going to land a little bit less speed, and he's going to be able to utilize that to go around, move around the octagon, hitting uh, Yehovic from different angles. It's just going to come down to, like you said, how much of those takedowns if Yehovic decides to use it, because we know at times where we expect him to use it, and then he doesn't. Yeah. And, and like, Is he going to take advantage of it? And that's why I'm leaning towards Fajita by decision here. I think it's going to be that cat and mouse maybe chess game to where you see who's going to make that mistake first and who's going to instill the game plan on this. So I'd like, I like I could see the first round seeing them fear each other out, collecting the data, see what's going to happen. And then I feel like with the volume game, I got to go with Fajita because he's the guy that's more used to – Thrown more volume, and he has showcased that he can go to decision several times. And Yehovich has a good gas tank as well, but he tends to, at times, slow down just a little bit in fights. And with him not mm-hmm. being the guy that can force his will on Fejeda because he's not going to be the bigger guy, I think he's going to have trouble with that. And I think this could be a fight where it could be possibly a split decision. I could see a split decision here. Mm-hmm. To where where it could come down to the third round. And then with me, I feel like Vejeda can out-volume him. And then maybe it comes down to uh, a, like a, a dispute where maybe he outvolumes volumes But then Jovovich takes him down for half the round and just controls him there. So it's like, what do you do there? And then that's where I kind of lean towards Vejeda right. in that one. So I'm going to say Vajda dare I say split decision in this one. <laughs> and he's already plus 100, so it's pretty decent there. I like the over one and a half odds there. And then I might st- stick to that. I might stick towards the money line and over one and a half rounds.
1: I see what's interesting is both of these guys have a lot of power, but they're yes. also not the cleanest strikers. Like one of the things that caught Pierre is that when he gets excited, his hands drop. And that's exactly yes. how Israel Adesanya caught him because he was working and working and crap. got him. Um, and he actually has only gone to decision one time, but I, I see the misunderstanding. Uh, he took Israel Adesanya the oh, first yeah. time all the way to the end of the fifth round. It was like yeah. two minutes in. So it was, it was, you know, pretty dang close. So he can go the distance. Um, I think in particular with Adesanya, it, like with that particular case, Adesanya is not the big volume guy all the time. He is no. the heavy counter guy. And that's kind of what gets him in trouble when he's like, oh, they didn't, they didn't bring the fight. It's like, dude, you, you have to have offense too. It's not just the other guy feeding your counter game. Now I think yeah. that is a difference with Pierre is that he does have an offensive counter game. I think he's a little slower though. Um, I feel like, I feel like with uh, Jojovic, he's more inclined to throw leather more quickly. Like, if you look at how he treated Dominic Reyes, for example, that's, I think, a good example of how when he feels like he can go, he'll go. You know, he'll he'll just start going. Um, even with the Israel Adesanya fight early on, once he kind of got used to it, he was more willing to throw. But it was once he was getting countered, he was like, all right, this isn't going to – let me just take him down. Let me just do that. Um, and, of course, we didn't get to – See, uh, oh no, that's right. Racket, you if, saw a little bit the knee injury at the end. That's
0: right. I look at that fight. Uh, the fight that stands out is Yehovic's fight against Glover Teixeira, the guy that's going to be mm-hmm. training Alex Fajida. He, yeah, he, he kind of, yeah. even, even though he mixed things up with the one, it was those leg yeah. kicks that were having the effect on the Yan early in that first round. And what mm-hmm. does Alex Fajita do best is those leg kicks that he throws from a range. So I could see a mm-hmm. scenario where he, like, uses that and he tries to slow Jehovich down with those leg kicks uh, to the thigh and repeatedly throwing them and try to stay a distance away to where he can manage that takedown defense because you're going to have to have Jehovich come to him and okay. rush him for those takedowns. If he just keeps on moving, throws those leg kicks, and then mix up the hands with inside of it, he's going to be able to, one, do damage to the leg of uh, Yehovic, and then, two, get that volume count up to where you got to have Yehovic fight from behind to get the round back with there. So I like the advantages right. there. It's just going to come down to, like we said, how is he going to do with the grappling and can to right. stay ahead of him on the, on the volume count to kind of minimize any of the takedowns that are done to him. Because if you if he can uh, do enough damage or to uh, Yehovich it can kind of outdo uh, that control time because if he gets taken down, he's going to have a harder time to get up. It just won't be as bad as Izzy because he has more weight on him than Izzy does. So it gives him more leeway with dealing with the guy on top of him.
1: I don't think he necessarily has to even take him down. I think just work in the back. Because, like, yeah. again, he's training with Glover, who is kind of more of a jujitsu background. And, again, no matter how good Glover is, you have to take into account there's not enough time. There's just yeah. not enough time to turn Pieria into Glover Teixeira. There, he's had, what, maybe six months uninterrupted training with Glover? So however good of a trainer Glover is, which we don't really know, he was mostly focused on his own career. This is kind of a new guy he's taken under his wing. And like if you're watching The the Ultimate Fighter right now, one of the takeaway lessons is that, you know, some fighters are both good fighters and great teachers. Some fighters, they're more just good fighters. (laughs) You know, they're they're kind of so-so on teaching. So, I mean, that's to be seen. Uh, But this is kind of a puzzle where depending on how you work it, depending on how you look at it, you know, it, it's going to be a close fight, I think, regardless, just because of the the caliber of these two. Um, but yeah, I think the, the props are probably going to be safer because all I I don't even think Yohovich has to take him down; he just has to hold his back. That's really yeah. it, because. I mean, that's not something jujitsu guys are great at this, dealing with, just in general. It, it's against this, the, the way they do things.
0: And this is where the, the odds being close to even are right. That's, that's why they're true. like they are, because both guys yeah. have their own, like, past the victory there. And yeah. that's so that's why it's so close to where it's minus 120 plus 100. It's like the summits yeah. of uh, margins. Here and that's why I think it goes to split decision. I'm just leaning towards the volume, and that's why I'm I, I'd rather go towards the, the underdog here than the guy who is going to do more, more control in the fight and will have less volume because I've seen more volume out of the Vejeda. has had mm-hmm. most uh, that he's done was against Izzy, and that was 100 strikes, and that was mainly yeah, not a big the, yeah. the, the yeah. grapple on things, so he's going to be more of the power. Mm-hmm in trying to yeah. knock out well both have a lot so. of knockouts but i think yeah. this is going to be a scenario where it's going to be like a kickboxing range fight i'm going to try and mm-hmm. land a lot of leg kicks i'm going to try and get up close and control you in, in the clinch
1: i do want to see how perry looks at 205 is so yeah. that's supposed to be closer to his weight so it's either going to be you know more like uh, uh, Paul Craig moving to 185 where he looks great he looks healthy yeah. he's right where he needs to be or it's going to be a Paulo Costa situation everybody says Costa looked better at 205 I thought he was sluggish I thought you know he had more power because he's a bigger boy but I think he was carrying the weight in a way that you just didn't see at 185 he was yeah. more lean he was he was more agile he's more mobile and then you put him at 205 it looks like he you know, the night before down to pint of ice cream and a whole freaking pizza and then was like, oh, fuck, I got a fight that I got to gotta get to. That's right. All right. Let me get the battery out and we'll, we'll take it. We'll take care of this. But I'm interested to see what kind of shape he's going to be in for that. But apparently the, the training's going well, according yeah. to the embedded episodes.
0: Let's move on to the main event. Even this is for the vacant BMF title. Yeah. At the lightweight uh, uh, division, <laughs> we got Dustin Poirier versus Justin Gagey, part two. We got Poirier yeah. coming in, the minus 135 favorite, and Gagey coming in, the plus 115 underdog. What are your thoughts on this main event?
1: Well, I mean, if we're going to keep the whole fake built thing going, then, you know, that their first time around was pretty exciting, so, you know, it makes sense. I don't know why we didn't just retire the fake BMF belt after you know uh, um, Massvidal ended up retiring. That probably should have been when we when we hang up the you know consolation prize belt because you're not good enough to like get a real belt. But whatever. So with these guys, they have kind of similar attributes, but they're different flavors. I think right, like Poirier, good striking, very technical over, especially like recently since he's really been fleshing out a lot of boxing with his coach. He's gotten way more precise, way more calculated. He still has as much power as he ever has. He's still very durable. Of course, his weakness is against strong grapplers. Uh, Gaichi is more the power brawler. The thing that really keeps him safe is his unorthodox upper body movement. Excuse me. He'll be like throwing punches and kind of cutting at weird angles. So his head isn't on on the center line. Uh, makes it kind of hard to track where he's going to be and, and, you know, make that leather connect with something rather than, you know, he throws a punch, he gets you. But then when you throw your more clean straight down the middle shot, he's not there anymore. It can be kind of frustrating for a lot of fighters. Like you saw that on full display, I think against Tony Ferguson was like the best example I've seen of it. Um, If you kind of want to visualize now he does have good grappling and he's also just as durable, but I don't really think the grappling is going to matter here. Um, I, I, if you watch his match with Faziv, I think that's basically a blueprint for how this is going to play out because again, Fazeev is a guy who is known for the kickboxing, but also known to like, not necessarily be the best wrestler, at least between Gaethje and Faziv, Gaethje definitely better. Like there's, it's not even close, man. Like look at his credentials, look at his, what he's done in the past. Even just look at, you know, how he used his wrestling earlier in his career you know, you can see that this guy knows what he's doing versus, you know, Fazeev. It's more like he's a kickboxing guy who's been picking up wrestling as he goes goes along. So, like, if you were the coach for Gechi, you would definitely want to go much, much heavier on the wrestling in early rounds before you start standing and trading with him. That way you can drain his stamina a little bit, maybe grind out a round or two so you're safe on the cards. And then if you want to make it like this big stand-up war that everybody wants to see, you have better odds there in the later rounds. Uh, but that's not what he did. He he mostly just stood right in front of Fazeev and just traded back and forth. They both took a ton of damage in that fight. Um, but the difference was, like, Gechi could have kind of messed with Fazeev a little more. And I think I saw him try a couple of times where even just threatening the takedown, like we talked about earlier, can kind of screw up a, a stand-up fighter, especially one who knows he's not as good at you as you on the grappling or the wrestling. Um, it'll it'll make you pause. It'll make you, oh, wait, hold on. oh shit, I don't want to go down, right? Uh, but he didn't do it. He did like two lazy ass knee picks that weren't even going to be successful if he wanted them to be. And Fazeev knew that. He's like, what are you doing? Get, get out of here. He just like spacked them around a little bit till they separated. And then they just went back to just banging. And I think a big part of that is because Gaethje's stated purpose is that he wants to be the most exciting fighter on the card. Not the necessarily the champ or the most technical. He wants to be the most exciting. What's exciting? Standing and banging wrestling and taking someone's back and grinding them out it's a very technical game but it's kind of boring to watch and i think he he kind of knows that and that's why he doesn't pull his wrestling out as much and just because like we've seen kind of what happens in the past when these two go at it i think it's you know it was a close decision last time but when you look at the stats i think the numbers kind of tell the tale here it was 174 to 115 total attempted strikes 351 to 212 so Gaethje yeah. was just lapping him. Like he was he did more than a hundred uh, attempted strikes than what Gaethje did. So the volume was there early in round one. He had a huge head start. It was sixty three to thirty four. I think that's uh, Poirier being the more precise, more calculated boxing style, where he is kind of focused on getting that volume on you early so that he can make his reads. But also once he finds those openings, he wants to start hurting you as much as he can early on, especially against a guy like Gaethje where he knows that wrestling's in the back pocket, probably won't come up, but what if it does? Well, I'd rather he be all beat up and tired, then try to wrestle me rather than like, you know, fresh and, and not very tired because maybe we only did like 20 round, 20 punches a piece in the first round. You no, know, he yeah. wants to start accumulating that damage quickly and he kept the clicks in him round two, 55 to 46. Round three, it started to stable out there. You started to see both guys; their gas tank kind of kind of started to wind down a little bit, right? You had uh, 38 to 33 in round three, and 18 to two in round four. So, Gaethje is the one who kind of gassed out first in that in that first go around. Um, and did he get the finish? I don't remember. I don't think he did. He oh, he did. He, he got the finish. Four. Yeah, that's right. It was like like very early in round four that's why the the numbers are so small okay so we've seen kind of the the way this works in terms of like when they fight it looks like Poirier gets the the volume and in in a lot of ways the power advantage just because he's better at pacing his energy so that his power stays consistent Gaethje's will fluctuate throughout the fight depending on how much gas he has in the tank and you know if, if Poirier can you know basically piece him up when he's fresh and front-loading all of his volume, then as the rounds go on, he's just not going to have anything in the tank left to really throw the kind of power that he's capable of in rounds three, four, and five. So, I mean, it, it the first two rounds. It's kind of anybody's game, but it's also kind of not, because I feel like the technique and the calculated poise of Poirier, I think wins out again here, because all he really has to do is just keep touching him. I don't think the threat of the wrestling is going to be very prevalent here. And I mean, even if Gaethje does kind of pull it out, I think it's going to be a lot like Fazeev where it's going to be kind of a lazy knee pick here, maybe a a slight, slight threat of a double leg or a single there. But he's going to abandon it quickly, um, just like he did with Fazeev, because I think Poirier, I think between Fazeev and Poirier, he does have the better takedown defense. So even if Gaethje were to commit, if it's too lazy, it's just not going to happen. And it's a burn on Gaethje's gas tank. And I think he knows that. So just based on history, stats, and the way these characteristics match up, I could see these two kind of brawling, um, especially in the earlier rounds. But if we see a similar pattern here, um, you could say Poirier's going to take a late knockout like he did last time. If you want to be a little safer, I could say he gets the decision this time around. Gaethje learned a little more from what I hear. He's doing great in camp. They, they showed the embedded episode. He's full of energy. He's you know doesn't look like he's curtain on the weight cut or anything. He looks great. So maybe this time around, he's a little more durable. He's a little more calculated. He's not going to just front load everything in the first two rounds and then die in the third and fourth. So this one, I could see maybe a decision is more likely, but I still see Poirier edging him out just a little bit. Um, Again, it, it just depends on who shows up. We've seen great versions of Gaethje who could potentially beat a Poirier, but I think the default version of Poirier, I think is really all he needs to have a slight edge over Gaethje if he comes in in a similar fashion, which again, if he's looking to be the highlight fun to watch guy, he's not going to be worried so much about the minutia of the technical side of it. He wants yeah. people to watch this and have fun. So I think that kind of almost gives him a sort of recklessness, you know? So for the, the betting on this, it'd be tough to, you know, look at those odds. I mean, the money line's all right. Maybe if you wait and then Poirier, ha- or I'm sorry, Gaethje has a strong first, it could cause a bigger swing just because of how close that first ra- that first fight was like they were just slugging in, in from like without the actual numbers, it looked like they were just dealing even damage, right? Like the first two rounds were very competitive without the actual stats there to help you out. Um, so I think if the judges see that or the bet odds makers to see that, maybe you could see how that first round plays out. If you see a big enough swing, you can play the live odds. Minus 135 isn't terrible either. You could go for the money line there. Um, definitely over, two, over one and a half. Uh, you could probably be fine doing over two and a half, just depending on where you get better plus money there. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm thinking Poirier is probably going to take the decision, but I'm not confident enough to necessarily put a bet on it.
0: Yeah, this is this is a fight where I'm not confident on either side in this one. Poirier did win the first one, but that was uh, Gagey's third fight in the UFC. He, had, he had yeah. debuted against yeah. Michael Johnson with a win, and then he came and had to fight Eddie Alvarez. Right away, in his second one lost to that that one, and then lost to Poirier, and then that's when he started to pick up on that winning streak in the yeah. UFC before losing to Habib. Yeah, it was Khabib, uh, so yeah, and and all there as it was, well. He was too. also a champ, so you yeah, know, yeah. So, so when you look at who he's lost to, he's lost to the 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 champ for uh, either a champ or a former champ in the UFC at, at the time, and. Like, one thing I did like was seeing in uh, the last fight against Fizzy Eye, it was he did get a takedown, and then he did showcase the threat in the third round when he needed to because it was one-to-one. A lot of people thought that maybe have might have won that second round, but I thought Gagey did. So going into that, his camp told him, got to go out round three. He went all out, got that takedown, but we're really impressed. Me was the fact that he mixed in a jab into his uh, repertoire in that round three, to where he he's always throwing that leg kick, and he's probably going to throw more into it, uh, and that's that's kind of how Dustin Poirier started throwing the leg kick was because of Gagey. Gagey threw over 15 in the or to 20 in that first round in their first fight, and then it started to go down a little bit. But now you're seeing Gagey do a little bit less leg kicks, but more volume with his hands. And he's showcasing, and I think he's going to be the one with the more power in this one. And I do feel like we're finally going to see him go with the takedowns a little bit more. If you look at the last fight for Poirier against Chandler, he got taken down three times. In, in that fight, in the first two rounds, he got taken down twice and controlled for a minute in round one, and then he got control uh, taken down and controlled for over three and a half to four minutes in the second round to where he had trouble with it, and I, I might look at that from Gage's eyes and think maybe I might have to look at it. even though I want to be the more succinct fighter, I might need to mix it into it. Even if I don't go for it, I might have to mix the threat into it because we've seen that Poirier is starting to slow down. He's still going to throw the volume, but he's starting to slow down. He's taking more damage in fights. And then that leg kick is going to be a big factor too. And I just feel like this might be a situation to where and maybe it's going to come down to that last round because we've seen these yeah. guys going into that fourth. It was two to one. You can you can be like, okay, it it was two to one Porte or two to one cha- uh, Gagey, yeah. but it could come down yeah. to that two to two going into that fifth round and that's when his his his, his, tank, his camp is going to be like, yeah, you got to pull out all the stops to get this victory, and you might mm-hmm. see him bring out the stuff that he normally doesn't throw unless he has to, and that's where I like that jab of Gagey, the power. Uh, I think he's going to put a little bit more volume. Both these guys have volume that can go with it. I just think that Gagey is showing less wear in fights right now than Poirier is. I thought Poirier looked like, even though he did pick up that victory against Chandler, he struggled in that fight. He struggled to get back in just to get that uh, uh, that submission where he was losing two mm-hmm. rounds, going into that last round, and he pulled that right out of his ass with that yeah. choke. He was bloodied up. <laughs> Chandler yeah. was bloody up, and this is the same Chandler that a fight or two ago was pummeled by Gagey on the uh, yeah. stand-up game. So I feel like maybe we were starting to see Poirier slow down a little bit. I still think it's going to be a close fight. I still think Poirier should be the favorite. But I'm going to go with Gagey here, uh, and I'm going to go with him by, by decision. I think he gets it done. I like uh, Gagey, the money line here, and I like the over two-and-a-half rounds mark in this one. I think he could possibly get a late finish if he, if he could. But these are just two dogs in that lightweight uh, division, and that's why they're doing the BMF title because these are two guys that you're going to see stay at the top five, even though they're getting up there fine age, not age, but fine age, and this is the perfect time to bring it back for at least one more and then you got, to of course, all who's going to put the belt on the winner, so that's a perfect touch. It's all about getting yeah. viewers to watch the product, and that's what they're doing. That's all it is is a, <laughs> is, a is a, is a production standpoint thing oh, yeah. uh, for, for the fact, yeah. and it adds a little bit more intrigue uh, into the UFC. So uh, they're, they're taking a little bit of a game plan from Vince McMahon here with the WWE. <laughs> and, and, and marking in yeah. here so but i'm going with the uh, justin gagey here i think he equalizes things with with the victory
1: but well, i hope because i feel like what what might happen is gagey remembers how exciting that first one was how everybody yeah. laughed out. i don't even even care he got knocked out i really don't yeah i think he he as a personal like uh in terms of like how he looks at it in his career. I think he thinks of that as a high point because of how much attention. And then he, got
0: from and then he started to fight a little bit differently because he got tagged yeah. with a couple of eye pokes into there. So he started yeah, to play yeah. a little bit too safe, and you saw the volume going a little bit down, and he stood and then he was just basically throwing more leg kicks than he was the striking because every time he got going, they would stop his momentum with that eye poke. And I think that played a big factor in that yeah. fight and it allowed to take over you know he had a little bit of damage there he didn't have to worry about that so he got the fight just how he wanted to whereas gg was kind of playing not scared but safe knowing that if he would have yeah. done it he would have gotten a, a, like a point deduction because i i do think that he was given a point deduction in one of those rounds
1: could have been, yeah. been i mean they were going back and forth but yeah. my main thing is i think you know I think Gagey, if like, let's say he pulls out the wrestling and he has a successful first round. If it's a boring round, I don't think he does it again. I yeah. think like, if it's not an exciting round, I think he goes, ah, let's just go to war because like that's but his personality, think, you know. But yeah, but, but I, I, it I would be it, really cool, really cool to see him
0: incorporate yeah. the wrestling and still be effective. That'd be awesome. But, but so even cool. even if it, he just did it for one round, that's a round where it's going to make Pore think for the rest of the fight, and it gives him right. that that one round advantage where he has that one. Uh, A round lead and then he could go into the striking and even though he's throwing feints to act like he's uh taking him down he can utilize Mm -hmm. that to get Poirier to bait on it and then throw those uh strikes at him and land some good shots because uh Poirier has showcased lately that he doesn't have the best striking defense right now and if he's gonna go to the, the the wrestling early is the best bet to do it to make him a double thing yeah
1: hopefully because yeah. I mean if gachi could get the wrestling figured out he could be a contender again he really could it's just he yes. doesn't care about that that's the problem like when you look at the current rankings like there's not a lot of challengers to go up against Makachev I know they're doing the rematch with Olivia, Uh, yeah. but I don't think Poirier has a shot even if he wins this like what's he gonna do Darius is sitting on a loss against Olivier made him look like a chump Chandler no shot come on get out of here Mm -hmm. but Gaethje has enough power and he's he's credentialed enough in the grappling to where I think if he really committed to like you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna integrate this and make it one complete seamless thing he could be a real problem for Makachev because on the feet he he poses a real threat that Makachev has to respect and if it goes to the wrestling I think he knows enough to at least stay out of trouble it's not quite the same as Khabib because I feel like Khabib and Makachev kind of play a slightly different game um, to where I feel like Gaethje, especially at this point in the game, he was very new to the UFC when he fought, you know, Khabib the first time around. If he were to really take the lessons he's, he's acquired over the years and really, you know, buckle down and tighten up his game, I think that could be a viable guy to potentially take the belt from Makachev. Because right now we're kind of running a little low. I mean, you got Saruki in there, who's a threat. You got, you, got the,
0: you got the got the got the rematch with Volkanovski coming because yeah, Volkanovski hopefully. is dead. he wants to go back up now he that he, he had uh, that, has that quick victory uh, against Rodriguez where he showcased a whole lot. He just dominated that fight. yeah, no. yeah. I know what was going to happen. Come yeah. on, dude. But, but, he, but he in his first fight, a lot of people thought he won that fight. Uh, three rounds to two, but it went it was close. Uh, yeah. I had
1: him winning that fight. Like yeah. that was a close fight.
0: Yeah, that but like horrible. the the one chance that you might have with this division is if Gagey can pull out that wrestle. And it's just a matter of is Thank he you. going to do that like you said because of the BMF but I think he will know that it's five rounds he can do the wrestling for the first round and then go right to the striking afterwards and it's not going to be pinpointed as a worn fight because you got four more rounds to work with and he can use that to kind of like get inside the mind of Poray to have to think about the threat of the takedown and it's going to leave more openings for him to fake the uh, going in the inside and then coming over the top with the strike they get a to catch Poirier sleeping, so like just the thought of it after the first round will play big deep uh, dividends for him if they can instill that early game plan to transition to the striking. Man,
1: I hope because I feel like you know Dustin Poirier should be the favorite here. He is. But if Gaethje can show us something. I mean, even if he doesn't win the belt, like, who cares? It's a fake belt anyway. He could be the guy who gets the real one. Like, he's he's the guy who has the most untapped potential right now. And it's just kind of disappointing because it's self-imposed. He wants to be entertaining and not, you know, a contender. It's a little frustrating.
0: Yeah. But other than that, I'll wrap things up with uh, today's UFC 291 Picks and Predictions uh, for this Saturday's UFC event at Salt Lake City, Utah. We will be back next Wednesday for UFC Ooh. Nashville with San Hagen and Font in the main event. Of course, Font is taking over for Umar Namar Gamadoff, who had to bail out to Ooh. the injury. But we do get a UFC fight night on the road and not at the Apex. So that is very fun. So you can catch us, of course, every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on the Bloodline Entertainment Network. You can check out all the other top content on the Ben Network on our Twitter, YouTube, and IG page. Of course, we got a one to two podcasts every day of the week. We got our two Twitch uh, channels as well, two Twitch lineups as well with uh, JD playing. on Monday and Tuesday, she's playing Star Wars Jedi Survivor on Tuesday. So, shoot, and then on Monday night, she's doing D- Detroit Becomes Human. And then you got the tribal chief, uh, Devin, who plays Destiny 2 on Wednesdays and Fridays. Both of those are late at 10, 11, or 12 on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday on Twitch. So, definitely check us out on Twitch. All the content is on there as well. And definitely check out a wrestling podcast that we have. We got the cinema podcast with the director's cut. We have a new podcast which we'll dive into both true crime and wrestling uh, with Casual Lee, and she adds a little bit of spice and flavor uh, to the network. And then we just added uh, the TBQ uh, guys uh, to the network as well. They're bringing more of the. Fantasy aspect with baseball and football. And then we got more to it as well. So definitely check us out on the Ben Network and please smash the like button down below, subscribe uh, to the YouTube channel, and leave us a comment of what you think of these picks and predictions for USC 291 and any bets that you're looking to go with, anything that you put out there, I will comment back and give my response to it as well. So definitely check us out once I said every Wednesday at 5. But other than that, I'll wrap things up for me and Miles, and we will see you guys next week for another edition of Cage My IQ. Thanks it's for real, tuning y'all. in.